Driving that coach. 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 We're back. Round two. All right, folks. Yeah. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Uh, hope y'all folks are enjoying your, you know, coronavirus quarantine just like the rest of us. Nice and fun. Yeah. And apparently it's going to last all the way through to... Uh... <laughs> all right. Having that culture. Oh. You want to interrupt me? You want to keep interrupting me? It cut out. It cut out, man. Can I say my shit? Yeah. First world, first world problem. Can I, can, I, can I say my shit? After you. Thank you. And welcome to Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. I'm JD. And I'm interrupting. It's going to be like this the whole fucking show. Probably. (laughs) It's authentic. People want it. (laughs) Yeah, I I know. I know. And and it's sad, but I I didn't get that. All right. So, uh, folks, uh, again, another week here quarantine in Los Angeles. Uh, again, we're doing the best we can to make sure you folks uh, are giving a good show with the format that we have been given, thanks to Zoom here. Um, again, this is our second uh, video uh, shoot, and uh, as you can see, we're both smoking cigars, enjoying ourselves. Uh, mine is a little more cheap than what AJ's got, so AJ, why don't you go ahead and explain what you got, man? Uh, I'm actually smoking my last Alhambra Manila. It's a Filipino cigar. It's like 30-something years old. My father gave it to me, and that's everything I know about it. I have no, I couldn't even tell you what the price point is on it. It's not bad. Well, one, I got, I got from, one I got, I got from the liquor store. <laughs> J&M, right? Yeah, J&M. Yeah, so very simple, very cheap cigar. Nothing out of the ordinary, nothing too crazy, but it does its job. That's really what it is. Well, and all the, the regular cigar shops are closed, so you got to make do with what you can find. Yes, unfortunately, that is true. Uh, all the high-end stuff is on lockdown right now, so we basically have to do Now, let's go ahead and uh, get from the doom and gloom of the quarantine and all the other crap, and let's get into this show like we uh, usually do and uh, get into our regular topics and our regular, and our regular segments. So first off, we're going to start off with uh, favorite here, Seven Degrees of Eddie Murphy, where I can connect any major American film star to the great Eddie Murphy within seven movies. And uh, I'll go ahead and do the intro that, a- that AJ loves so much. The best. Yeah, well. Yeah. It's that rolling. All right, so what, uh, what names you got for me uh, this week, AJ? Start out with the great 1990s film star, David Arquette. David Arquette. Uh, ah, easy. Uh, David Arquette was in, oh yeah, Scream 2 with Jada Pinkett. Jada Pinkett was in The Nutty Professor Eddie Murphy. That was a little, little simpler than I was hoping. Yeah. How about, uh, oh, how about uh, Vin Diesel? Pitch Black himself. Pitch Black. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Vin Diesel. Oh, 
another relatively easy one. Ben Diesel was in um no no, you know what? I'm not gonna go that route. I'm not gonna go that route. So it's not the route. Yeah, okay. Alright. Ben Diesel was in Boiler Room with Nia Long. Nia Long was in Big Mama's house and Martin Lawrence. Martin Lawrence was in Life with Eddie Murphy. All right. Go a little bit old. We'll see, see if you get there. So, Poitier. Sydney Poitier? Yep. Ah, got it. All right. All right. Sydney Poitier was in. Which one I don't want to do, though? I don't know. Sydney Poitier. You know, I'll, go, I'll, keep, I'll, keep, I'll keep some. I'll keep some. Okay, Sydney Poitier was in. Uh, oh, yeah, shit. Sydney Poitier was in Let's Do It Again with John Amos. John Amos wasn't coming to America with anybody. <laughs> yeah, it was easy. I was like, I was like, why am I wrecking my brain on this? Yeah, th- there it is right there. All right, not bad. That was, that was pretty quick. He's right. And uh, John Amos was, uh, what's his name, Kansas City Mac in that movie. <laughs> Kansas City Mac. And then the, that's where they got the name Biggie Smalls was from Let's Do It Again. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Calvin Lockhart played Biggie Smalls in uh, Let's Do It Again. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, that was a, that was a killer round of Seven Degrees with Murphy. <laughs> I, I don't think I can ever listen to this again without actually seeing the facial expressions with it. <laughs> it does help, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the head and shit, yeah. All right, let's go ahead and go into another segment here. Um, WWBS, what would Busey say? We're going to do a rant, improvised rant, uh, through the mind of the great Gary Busey. So uh, what are we ranting about? And let's not do something coronavirus related. Let's do something else. Anything coronavirus related. You were talking about CGI cat buttons last time. Yeah, I'm okay. Okay, uh, give me one. All right. Well, um, just because you and I have I had some offline conversations about it, and everybody seems to be working out a lot more these days, I'm curious mm-hmm. what you see things about jogging or running. It might be jogging, maybe a soft chair. I don't know. <laughs> soft chair. <sighs> what do I think about exercise? Well, exercise is important. You know, it helps to maintain the homeostasis, you know, maintain your core. Maintain the overall physical health. Physical health is so important nowadays, particularly with what's going on. I'm not going to go into it too deeply. But, you know, I like to jog every once in a while. But me, personally, I usually like to take a nice big hit of some sort of amphetamine, and then I just go running. I mean, I'm running. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not talking about a, a jog around the block. No, I'm talking about miles. I, I'm running. Like, I'm running to the fact that I'm we're not the soles of my shoes, my feet are bloody, just running. And of course I look nuts doing it, but you know what, I don't give a fuck, I don't care. I'm just gonna run and run. I feel like I'm having my own personal force moment, whenever I just run. And next thing you know, I'm starting initially in Long Beach, I end up in goddamn El Segundo, you know, just running. And it's great, it's fantastic. And you see all of nature, you see the woods, you see the trees, you see the people, you see animals. And I just keep running and running and running. Then, of course, I pass out, get back up, 
run some more. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, run a little bit more, pass out again, run some more. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just keep going, man. And uh, run, run some more, stop, maybe go to like some, uh, one of those like food, or faux like shops, give me some noodles, keep running again. Ah, tired of blood. I was less insane than usual, but you know what? Very simple. Keeping it simple today, man. Well, I did give a simple prompt. I think I need to get a little more specific if I really want to get into the wilder side of Mr. Busey. Mm-hmm. I mean, I as, opposed to him, as opposed to him running from Long Beach to El Segundo? I mean, that was just a Forrest Gumpian kind of a thing. I, I kind of I think maybe we should get into DMT next time. See what. Okay. I'm fine with that. <laughs> All right. All right. Now, uh, before we get into dropping that news, which will be relatively quick, uh, we want to do some plugs here. Like, uh, we've been kind of on and off on this for the last few weeks, but we need to get back on it because of the fact that, you know, there's a lot of people that's inside right now. You should go and check out different things. Now, first off, uh, we're going to go ahead and thank one of our first sponsors. That will be Belsaverse, uh, located on Facebook and also on Instagram. Um, there also is the Belsaverse store at teespring.com. There are several t-shirts there that are still, you know, waiting to be sold. You know what I'm saying? There's some good designs there. We're working on a few other ones. Uh, hopefully, we should have ones very soon. Um, I have one particular uh, that I'm very, very proud of. It's a, more or less a picture of me saying, this is Jadaro Belser, because I'm that dope. You should get that shirt. It's a conversation starter. People will be like, who the fuck is that? I'm like, hey, that's Jadaro Belser. Oh, okay. Yeah. A lot, of people, a lot of people, you know, nowadays, you know, it really don't take much to entice people so uh like, <laughs> but like I, yeah but like i said go ahead and go to belsaverse uh at teespring.com get yourself a shirt it's great get some great shirts get some uh, get yourself a conversation starter you know what I'm saying uh, and also, we also have hoodies uh women's apparel uh things of that nature and also check out belsaverse on uh, facebook and instagram both the groups and pages are open uh, check us out you know what i'm saying we usually uh, put in a lot of news in terms of pop culture uh, well, I usually put it on a little something anyway, just in case, anyway, just to keep things festive. And then we also have another sponsor. What women's apparel do you have? Same shirts, just for women. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, I don't know. Could be doing like You asked. There's your answer. <laughs> but uh, like I said, go ahead and uh, let us know about our next sponsor. Uh, yeah, so our uh, next sponsor is ushooker.com. Do you like rugby? Do you like hookers? Do you like rocking? Well, then US Hookers for you. Uh, wearing one of their wonderful shirts right here today says hookers love to rock. It's got this awesome, it's, all, it's actually faded now because I wear this all the time, my US Hooker logo right here on the side, American flag. Make sure people know that uh, you're a fan of US rugby. Um, you know, if you don't know anything about rugby, go to ushooker.com. They'll teach you everything that you need to know about it. Uh, also, find them on Facebook. Uh, they got a lot of good information there. A dozen or so uh, brand new designs that are absolutely killer. T-shirts, goodies, tank tops. They got some noise on your end. I just want to make sure because your audio kind of went out there a little bit. I just want to make sure everything's good to go. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, I can hear you now. Okay. I don't know what that was. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's good water. But yeah, go to ushooker.com. All kinds of cool gear. 
learn about an awesome sport. Um, I, used, look, I grew up playing football. I love football. A bunch of guys on my team, uh, a bunch of Kiwis, you know, guys from New Zealand, they taught me about it. I learned it through the All Blacks, which honestly are the best team. And here's the best part. You don't have to decide between football and rugby. Football season ends, rugby season begins. So jump in, love it. It's like football. All right, cool. All right, let us go ahead and drop into uh dropping that news. Dropping that news. Uh on my end, I have nothing. <laughs> All right. Well, then I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, the two mm -hmm. biggest stories I could think of right now, uh, again, speaking about rugby, unfortunately, uh, USA Rugby had to file Chapter 11 um, with the massive disruption to the rugby season, world rugby, everything happening this year. Um, they had to go and restructure their debt. They're not going away. Um, they're supported by uh, the board, lots of uh, financial backers. We also support them as a country because it's our national team. They play at the Olympics, they play in the World Cup, all that stuff. So they're still around. Um, this isn't great news for them, obviously, because anytime a business is in that position, it, it's challenging. Getting out of it's challenging, but um, that would be that on the, the world of sports. Um, and then probably the biggest single piece of news out this week for entertainment, um, they just announced at uh, Lionsgate they're going to be um, dropping about a dozen employees from the film marketing distribution side. Um, how permanent or how short-term that is, they haven't said. So um, they're at a minimum being furloughed, at a maximum. It's a Okay, <laughs> and that has been dropping that news. Yeah, that's pretty much it, man. So, dropping that news. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> All right, so me and potatoes, we are going to talk about escape from LA while not being able to escape from LA. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, more accurately, we're going to be talking about the works of uh, the great John Carpenter and his many films. Uh, both AJ and I are huge. Yeah, yeah. So me and AJ are both huge John Carpenter fans, and uh, this has been one of the subjects that have been in our mind ever since we started this podcast. So we've always wanted to maybe designate a whole episode just to the work of one director or one that we've done John Landis already. So might as well go ahead and do John Carpenter, who's another one of my favorites. So I'll go ahead and start it off with a quote from John Carpenter himself. In France, I'm an auteur. In Germany, a filmmaker. In Britain, a genre filmmaker. And in the USA, a bum. Yeah. So that pretty much that's very, that's very John Carpenter. John Carpenter himself was born John Howard Carpenter in, uh, on uh, January 16, 1948 in uh, Catheridge, New York. Nickname is JC. Nice. Uh, he was born in Catheridge to uh, Milton Jean and uh, Howard Ralph uh, Carpenter. Uh, his family moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky 
where his dad was a professor, at the head of uh, music, apparently at Western Kentucky University. He attended Western Kentucky University and then was transferred to USC Film School out here in LA. Uh, that's when he began started making short films in 1962. He actually was part of an Academy Award winning short in 1970, The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. Uh, he's a part of that. He wasn't the director, mm-hmm. but I think he's one of the writers or, or like a, an assistant on it. Excuse me. He also formed a band uh, during the 70s called the Coupe de Villes with uh, Tommy Lee, mm-hmm. with Tommy Lee uh, Wallace and uh, Nick Castle, who both will go on to be integral parts of his films. Mm-hmm. Uh, since the 70s, he's basically had numerous roles in the film industry, writer, actor, composer, producer, and of course, director. Uh, his, uh, after directing uh, Dark Star in uh, 1974, he helmed a lot of horror movie classics, many of which we're going to be talking about uh, today. Uh, like uh, Halloween, The Fog, The Thing, and then, of course, sci-fi tales like Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., and Starman. Now, he's been married twice. His uh, first wife uh, was, uh, actually, his first wife was uh, Adrian Barbeau. The very Adrian Barbeau, though. Yeah. Let's you, Adrian Barbeau. Uh, <laughs> uh, he actually met her on a set of a TV movie they did in the 70s called Someone Is Watching Me. Uh, they were married from uh, 1979 to 1984. They had one child together uh, who was actually named John Carpenter Jr., but his nickname is Cody. So just, just to kind of avoid confusion. Uh, and of course, she's done a lot of movies, with, uh, a number of movies with John Carpenter. She was in The Fog and, of course, in Escape in New York. Uh, his uh, second wife, uh, Sandy King, is his current wife, and they've been married since 1990 to now. Uh, she's basically produced most of his later movies, like In the Mouth of Darkness, Village of the Dam. Vampires, Ghosts of Mars, uh, and she's also script supervisor on like some of his earlier films, like Starman and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, in terms of some facts about Mr. Carpenter himself, uh, he actually has certain trademarks that he uh, associates with his films. Like uh, number one, he does a lot of horror films, uh, like I said before. Uh, number two, he also tends to do the attribution where he will put his name at the head of whatever movie it's in. So John Carpenter's Halloween, John Carpenter's Escape from New York, John Carpenter's Christine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, also, uh, composing. He does most of the uh, soundtracks of his movies himself, which makes him very unique among Hollywood directors because, in fact, he not only does the directing, he also does the music. I mean, the only time you really see that from him is going to be indie films. Yeah. So, yeah, he, most, of, most of his uh, scores are synthesizer or piano-based. And, uh, yeah, they, and they sound great. Sound just as good as any other composer out there. Yeah, so uh, that's another interesting thing he does. Uh, also, he loves to do cheap scares, uh, which uh, you'll see his movie. He'll, like Even in his, like, sci-fi movies. You, I was actually watching Escape from New York this morning, and, like, there's one part where Snake is in the uh, World Trade Center just getting his gun together, and just some dude just runs around <laughs> across on the back. <laughs> It had nothing to do with the scene. Just some dude just ran across. Just a scare. <laughs> just a cheap scare, man. And it works, though. He also does a lot of apocalyptic type uh, themes like uh, The Thing and Prince of Darkness and, you know, uh, In the Mouth of Madness and, of course, uh, Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. You know, a lot of those movies are, you know, can be seen as uh, apocalyptic, you know, that the future is not going to be great or maybe there's going to be some event that's going to lead to the end of the world. Uh, things of that nature. He does that a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, uh, in terms of, 
You know, one other one other quick note as far as uh, things that he likes to do. He he's appeared in a number of his own films, but he goes under the name Rip Hate, H A G H T. So he, yeah. I mean, he's one of those directors, sort of like uh, like an Orson Welles or uh, Hitchcock. Actually, Hitchcock probably more, where he just has these little cameos just for the hell of it. It's like an Easter egg. Yeah, and sometimes the actual cameos themselves might be just him on screen or yeah. just his voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, he also references a lot of the works of uh, Alfred Hitchcock, since we talked about Hitchcock. Uh, he often films a lot of scenes in like single confined locations. So you don't really see a lot of jumping around in like John Carpenter movies. Uh, yeah. And, uh, actually, I want to go ahead and get into some of the trivia of Mr. Carpenter. Can, one, like, can I give you one more quick one before we jump? Just something else okay. that's kind of funny about him. Go so a lot of directors, you'll see them when they're on set, they'll be wearing a hat or a t-shirt or a jacket or something that's got their, uh, their show's name on it, whatever it is they're making. Mm -hmm. He says that bad luck. So he won't wear any hats or anything with the name of his show till after it's wrapped, post is done, it's been delivered. At that point, then he's proud to wear it. So yeah. kind of funny, yeah. he's got a little bit of a superstitious angle to him, especially considering all the horror movies he does. I dig that, man. Yeah. Uh, also, he is an atheist. And he um, has a distinct love for Elvis Presley and old Cadillacs. You see a lot of Cadillacs in the movies, especially though, like I said, Escape from New York, the Duke had a Cadillac with the chandeliers on the shit. Yeah. And uh, he's a major NBA fan and also has a satellite dish uh, whenever he's on location so he can keep up with all the games. He also keeps a portable basketball hoop for a location. Uh, like I said, uh, he also is a big fan of Sergio Leone films. So like, you know, Fist full of dollars, a few dollars more, good, bad, and the ugly. He loves those type of movies. I do too. Oh, and sure. like, and also one of the reasons he picked Levon Cleef for Escape from New York is because of the fact that uh, Levon Cleef was usually the bad guy in a lot of those Sergio Leone movies, particularly the ones with Clint Eastwood. And like, yeah, so it just it just seems perfect for him to bring that in. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. That's all that. Roughing on my notes. Well, I got the. Uh, uh, with the exception of. Sorry. What? 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 Interrupt me again. What? What? Like Interrupt me again. Interrupt me again. <laughs> Interrupt me again. We can't do nothing. Interrupt me again. Interrupt me again. <laughs> you were saying? <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I've got a list, but I don't want to steal your thunder. Of, uh, no, no, no. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Since crazy you talk. films that he turned down the chance to direct. So I just don't. I was going to ask if you were going to get into that later because I don't want. to I actually was about to get in. I actually am going to get into. I'm going to let you later. do that. One. Just, so just save that. Hookers right. love to rock. Shall I continue? <laughs> Please. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was going to say, with the exception of uh, Escape from L.A., he rarely does a sequel to any of his films. Uh, he said he actually was forced into writing Halloween 2, but he refused to direct it because he didn't want the same. He wanted he didn't want to direct the same movie again. So makes sense. That does make sense. Uh, he's a big fan of the Beach Boys and Howard Hawks films. Uh, he's an avid Godzilla fan, and he also considers uh, the very first Godzilla film from 1954 as a huge influence inspiration on him and his career. Uh, he was actually approached to score Planet Terror by Robert Rodriguez from Ryan House, uh, but he was actually busy making an episode of uh, Masters of Horror on Showtime. 
close mm-hmm. is a close friend, of course, of uh, Jeff Bridges and uh, Kurt Russell. Lives in West Hollywood. He's very open about that. Uh, he actually directed both ch- uh, two sisters in the movies, Kim Richards in a, in a song from uh, Precinct 13, the original, mm-hmm. and Kyle Richards, who uh, most people will know now from the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. She's actually the little girl, uh, I think Lindsay or whatever her name is in Hollywood. No, I think, I think the little girl's like Lindsay. Uh, she's like watching TV, whatever. Like, yeah, that's Kyle Richards. Okay. That's her yeah. little girl. So. Uh, he often claims that the Western is actually his favorite film genre, but he's never actually made a Western. But he makes a lot of references to Westerns in his movies. I don't know why he's never made a Western. I mean, to be honest, his time frame when he actually finally came to prominence and could do what he wanted, Western really kind of died out as a genre. I mean, you, you had Unforgiven popped up for a second and a couple of little piddly things. And you had Tombstone popped up for a second, a couple little piddly things. And then, honestly, the last great Western I can think of is probably The Proposition. Everything else that's come out that's a Western is kind of like, you know, it's just not, it's just not there. It's, it, it's a bygone era, really. But yeah. you could also make the argument that Escape from L.A. and Escape from New York are Westerns. They're just sci-fi Westerns. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, Snape Plissken is definitely a Western character. 100%. I can see him in a Western. Now, he named his six favorite movies of all time. Uh, they are Only Angels Have Wings from 1939, Rio Bravo from 1959, yep. Citizen Kane from 1941, Vertigo from 1958, okay. Black Christmas from 1974, and Blowout from 1966. Those are his favorite movies. Blowout? Blowout. I don't think I know Blowout. I was thinking Blow Up. No, no. Oh, it's blow- yeah, it's Blow You are right, Blow Up. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah, thinking yeah. blowout. I'm thinking there's another one, blowout with uh, what's his name? Uh, I think that was a Brian De Palma movie with uh, Travolta. I think that was. I oh, was okay, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I know the one you're talking. About. I can't remember if that was blowout or not, but blow up seems to be the one that all the all the film guys go to. Got to be honest, yeah. not my top ten. I get why people like it. It's just it's not for me. Gotcha. Uh, he claims his son Cody actually got him hooked on to playing video games. Uh, when Cody was a little kid, they spent a lot of time together playing them. Uh, apparently, an early favorite between the two was a son of the Hedgehog. Uh, as an avid gamer, he actually continues to play games with his son now. As of 2013, his recent favorites are Dishonored, Assassin's Creed 3, and the uh, God of War series. And he's frequently seen at the uh, E3 convention with his son. So, yeah, apparently, John Carpenter's a big gamer. All right. All right, we're cool. I, I think it's pretty cool, actually. Uh, he actually is. Uh, he actually holds a commercial pilot's license. He can actually. Uh, he can actually fly helicopters. Cool. Uh, he usually has uh, shots in his movie, uh, usually from the back of a character as they walk away from camera. He does in a lot of his movies, and he's uh, known to be very comfortable with filmmakers and other people doing sequels and remakes of his movies. But he admits he's actually indifferent uh, towards them. He usually gets involved with such projects for the money. So at least he's honest about that. Yeah. Now, since we talked about Miss Giggs, uh, I got a few. Uh, why don't you go ahead and start it off? Because you're so anxious on doing that. <laughs> what that I was anxious. I was just checking because I know I can tend to uh, trip over you from time to time. So I'm trying not to not to do that too much. Um, so. Well, well, no, you know what. Yeah, you know what? I'm not going to do that. You know what I'm saying? You, you, want, you want to talk? Talk. <laughs> All right. So uh, just off the top of the list here, and this might have actually saved this movie 
he turned down the uh, the Mutant Chronicles in uh, 2008. That could have been could have been maybe a little something different. He turned down the chance to work with Eddie Murphy in The Golden Child in 86. In 86, he also turned down Top Gun. In 87, he turned down Fatal Attraction. Uh, in 86, he also turned down Arm and Dangerous. And uh, let's see here, what was the next one I got? Um, he also, buh, buh, buh. oh, and that's, that's the job that actually ended up going over to, um, uh, to Lester, who directed, uh, to Mark L. Lester, who directed Firestarter in 84. Yep, yeah. Oh, now, uh, going go, go back real quick. Well, I was going to say what? 2009, he turned down Zombieland. Yeah, uh, but I was going to say, going back to Fatal Attraction a little bit, as to why he turned it down, because the fact he saw the script and he said it's basically play Misty for me, which it is. Yeah. Right. Play, Misty, play Misty for me is the granddaddy of all those, you know, uh, stalker type movies or whatever, you know, Clint Eastwood and uh, what's the name, Jessica Walter back in the 70s. Uh, but yeah, like, yeah, I, I watched Play Misty for me. Yeah, I could see why he didn't want to do that. Like, I'm not going to rip off Clint Eastwood. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, but on the other hand, one thing uh, I had a great directing teacher told us once: um, if you copy somebody's script, it's plagiarism. But if you essentially make somebody else's movie, if you copy some of the shots and stuff like that, it's an homage. So, yeah. you well, could have done an homage to play Misty for me, and it probably would have worked. But again, you got to uh, you got to respect the man and his. Uh, his sensibility that he's like, nah, I want to do something original. Yeah. And at one point he was actually attached to doing a remake of the creature of the black lagoon for universal. Oh, that would have been awesome. uh, yeah. And uh, Rick Baker was also attached to, to do the, the monster. So, but it never got greenlit for some reason, but yeah, I had yeah, apparently, it. Apparently people who were working at universal didn't know what they were doing. Cause Holy shit. That would have been awesome. Uh, just, just me saying that out loud. Like that, dude, that's a movie. Let's do that. That's a franchise. Yeah, John Carpenter, Rick Baker. Dude, let's do this right now. You know what I'm saying? So Yeah, tell me what the budget is. You're greenlit. 35 million. Let's go. Let's go. All right, now we go ahead and got into his misgives. Now let's go into his actual movies themselves. First one I want to do, Halloween. Mm -hmm. The one that really broke out, you know, John Carpenter. Put him on the map. Put him on the map, man. And Curtis, put her on the map. I'm going to get to that, too. Now, based on the actual character, Michael Myers, is actually based on a 13-year-old kid that he saw at a mental institution when he was on a school trip in college. Like, he was apparently touring, like, some psychiatric ward. He saw this one kid, and this one kid was just staring at him. And he said the kid had a, a look of evil, and it terrified him. And that was the kid's name, Michael Myers. So took that with him, and, of course attributed to this killer character. Now, the original name of the script for Halloween was called The Babysitter Murders. Halloween. And the events of the movie... Yeah, 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 Halloween's better. Yeah, and uh, the events of the movie take place over, was supposed to take place over several days, but for budgetary reasons, they made sure that everything was pretty much condensed down to one day. Uh, and also, it helps with the movie. Like, you know, I, like, I always love those, like one day in, in the life of a person type movies, you know what I'm saying, where a whole bunch of crazy shit just happens in one fucking day. Well, if it's spread out over the short there's many opportunities for them to get away, to get help, to, you know, go somewhere and find themselves somewhere. Like, again, we can, we can fall down a rabbit hole on that one, but it makes total sense to put it all in one night, and it definitely ups the ante, right? 
Yes, it does. And also, he picked Halloween because it's traditionally the scariest night of the year. So it'd be the perfect time for this kind of thing to happen. Now, uh, in, in the interview, uh, the producer, Mustafa Akkad, said that John Carpenter actually envisioned, make, envisioned making the movie around $300,000. But Akkad himself said that he was producing and filming a ma another major motion picture at the time with Lawrence Olivier, which was costing him around $300,000 a day. Mm -hmm. so, uh, when, uh, so when John Carpenter told him he wanted to do it at 3000 the whole movie at $300,000, like, got it. You're in. Yeah. Now, with the budget of $300,000, the movie went on to gross over $47 million at the box office. And basically, <laughs> equivalent to, to at least even equivalent to $2,008, that's about $150 million. Yeah. And again, a million, a million five. Like, it's insane. Exactly. And of course, that makes uh, Halloween one of the most successful independent movies of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, the average age span of both cast and crew for Halloween was 26 years old. That's the average age. Everybody was like babies making this movie. And they did a great job. They did a fantastic job. Yeah. Now for the score itself, John Carpenter completed the score, the famous Halloween theme. That shit, he did it in four days. It's not bad. Not bad at all. Now, uh, are you doing that Clark, because the score was hot, or is there something else happening over there? Because <laughs> uh, there's a fucking bug in my face. I'm outside, folks, as you can see. So you don't want to get like, out of your out of your place for smoking inside. Exactly. So you could probably hear like wind chimes and goddamn dogs barking in my my particular version because of the fact I'm outside. There it is. I'm outside too, so you can get the uh, flyover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got I got a couple of those too. <laughs> Uh, now, dark lighting in the movie, that was actually came out of necessity because of the fact they didn't have enough money for lights. Um, the other thing you got to give it, just before we move on from that, because there's a lot, of, a lot of night shots in there, and people who don't follow on don't necessarily know or understand. It's mm -hmm. absolutely crazy difficult, especially with the film emulsion that they, when they were shooting in the, in the 70s, it's crazy difficult to capture stuff in low light, and they did a fantastic job. So I'm thinking about, was it was it the third Dirty Harry where there's that that scene where he goes inside the building and he's he's fighting that guy inside and it's super dark. Is it the third oh, one? Uh, you yeah, it was a, I know. Uh, sudden impact. Yeah, when in sudden impact when he's in there and he's fighting that guy in the dark and you can't see what the hell's going on even in a pitch yeah. black room. It's because you yeah. Can't. I mean, you have to have that contrast of light in order for it to be captured on film emulsion. So when you watch Halloween and you realize not only did they not have the money for it, but all of the night shots, they did a killer job of actually still making so you can see what the hell's happening. I mean, that in and of itself is a filmmaking feat. You've got to give them, again, 26-year-old kids doing this shit. Fantastic yeah, man. work on their part. Now, uh, the producer of the film was Deborah Hill. Uh, she worked for no salary and a percentage of the profits. Uh, since uh, the movie grossed well over $70 million, it turned out very well for Deborah Hill. Uh, John Carpenter himself was only paid $10,000 to write, direct, and score this movie. Uh, also, because of the fact the movie was made during the springtime, they had a hard time procuring pumpkins for the Halloween you know, scenes. So, <laughs> Now, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, interestingly enough, they were a couple at the time, and, and also business and also business partners. Now they were working on the movie together as a couple. Uh, they actually broke up a year later, 
uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has said in movies that uh, that J- that um, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were her movie career movie a, a horror movie parents, and she was actually sad when they broke up. Mm. So yeah, film now the film itself actually takes place between based on Halloween night October nineteen sixty three, and also Halloween night uh, nineteen seventy eight. So yeah, you got to jump uh, into Go ahead. I said they have to jump between two Halloween nights to make it work. Yeah. And uh, Carpenter hired Jamie Lee Curtis mainly as a homage to Psycho and more or less Hitchcock because of the fact that, the unknown fact, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother is Janet Lee, the lady from Psycho. (laughs) The chicken in the shower screaming, that's Janet Lee. That's Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. Family business. Getting killed by psychos. My God, <laughs> that is the family <laughs> business, man. <laughs> now, um, both uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill both have stated several times that they did not intend for the whole depicting uh, virginity as a way of def- defeating a rampage of killer trope. The, the, they, they, were inti- they weren't intending to do that. Um, they said the reason that all the horny teens die is simply because they're so preoccupied with getting laid that they're not noticing this killer at large. On the other hand, Lori is spending a lot of time on her own or with little kids, and she's therefore a lot more alert than the you know, other ones that die. Situational so, awareness, man. It just, just happened to be like that. <laughs> Situational awareness. Now, as far as the mask... Yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. we had an internet lag. I just said it makes it or breaks it. Situational awareness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, as I was saying, as far as the mask goes, there were actually two choices for masks. The first one was actually a uh, Don Post Emmett Kelly smiling uh, clown mask with like frizzy hair and shit. Uh, they thought it would look creepy, kind of like the mask that the little that the little Michael wears when he kills yeah. his sister Judith at the beginning of the movie, like that. But it's like they tasted it out and it was like eh, it's all right. The other mask was a uh, 1975. James T. Kirk mask from Star Trek that was purchased, that was purchased for around a dollar. Uh, they basically had these sideburns and their eyebrows ripped off. They painted it what they call fish belly white. And uh, more or less, they cut out you know the eyes and all the shit. They spray painted the hair brown and they opened up the eyes or whatever. Uh, they tested the, the Kirk mask and everybody's like, you know what, that's way creepier. Because like, the fact is emotionless. Uh, let's go with that. Let's go with that. And that became the Michael Myers mask. It's a Captain Kirk, a, paint, a white painted Captain Kirk mask. Fantastic. And over the years, yeah, over the years, if you watch the Halloween movies, they make the mask even less pronounced in terms of making it look like William Shatner. Yeah. So, because apparently William Shatner hates the fact that they use his, <laughs> they hate the fact that he uses a mask of him for this killer. <laughs> well, first of all, the mask back then didn't look that much like him, number one. And number two, by the time they got done processing it, it looked nothing like him at all. No, actually, if, uh, my thing is, like, if you look at the first Halloween and look at certain scenes, like the one scene that where you see, really see a lot of the Shatner is that when uh, he, he kills the girl that was on the phone, and then he picks up the phone and puts it to his ear and starts breathing, like... You very much see the Shatner, like the cheekbones. I'll have to watch, have to watch it again. I don't, I don't recall ever seeing Shatner. I mean, I knew about it, but I just, I don't know. I see, you very much see Shatner. I'm just saying. Okay. 
Now, since I mentioned it before, the Halloween theme, the which I love, by the way, I, that's such a good and simple theme song for for anything. So I, I really love the Halloween theme. Now, it was performed and composed by John Carpenter himself. If you wear a four-five time signature, apparently he learned this rhythm from his dad, who again was a music professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he admitted that he was inspired by the music from uh, Dario Argento's uh, uh, Suspiria, I believe that's the name of the movie. And one of them Dario Argento movies, like them crazy, you know, like Italian horror movies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, one of those movies. And also uh, the, 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 uh, the music from The Exorcist. That was a big Yeah, definitely, definitely can hear some of that in there for sure. <laughs> I always, like always love the, the Exorcist thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, um, in, in addition to the, because uh, of the film's critical and commercial success, the Halloween theme has become as recognizable as the movie itself. You know what I'm saying? Like, and pretty much he said, like, in terms of how he does music, uh, John Carpenter, he said, uh, I could play just about any keyboard, uh, but I can't read or write a lick. So, pretty successful. Yeah, he can't write, <laughs> yeah, he can't read or write music, but he can play any keyboard. Well, but I mean, that's like that, uh, that old school way of learning music where you learn it all by rote, it's all by ear. I mean, that's, that's honestly, that's how I am with any of the instruments that I play. I, I maybe can kind of sort of, if you give me like 20 minutes, figure out what the music says. But right. I got no clue, so. But there's nothing wrong with it. Now, in this particular movie, he credits himself as the, the, the Bowling Green Philharmonic Orchestra. <laughs> and Bowling Green, of course, is a reference to his hometown in Bowling Green, Kentucky. That's hilarious. So, yeah, it's cool. Now, Jamie Lee Curtis was so disappointed in her performance, she thought she was going to be fired like, after the first day. But she got a, a call from John. She's like, no, no, we love, we love what you're doing. You're cool. He congratulated her, put her at ease. Like, I'm very happy the way things are going. But she was very nervous throughout the filming of this movie. Now, John Carpenter himself actually approached both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee to play Dr. Loomis. Uh, Christopher Lee actually passed on it, and he said it's probably the single biggest mistake he's ever made in his career. I think it would have been cool to see Christopher Lee as Dr. Loomis. Yeah. You agree? Oh, 100%. All right, cool. All right, cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, now, uh, Donald Pleasance himself, who did play Dr. Loomis, is actually the oldest and most experienced person on the crew of this entire movie. And he actually said why he uh, did the movie. He's like, I don't know why. Hey, this is Donald Pleasance talking. I don't know why I'm in this movie, and I don't know who my character is. The only reason I'm doing this is because I have alimony to pay, and my daughter's in England, and she's in this rock and roll group, and she said she loved the music from a song on Pre-C-13. That's how I came to know you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then, of course, uh, Donald was a little difficult, apparently, according to John, but they've since become, they since have become great friends, apparently. And John, and uh, excuse me, uh, Donald Pleasance were going to do two other Carpenter movies, so. Well, that's one of those things that you hear all the time when it comes to young directors or more inexperienced directors working with veteran actors, right? I mean, that pops up all the time. In fact, what was it in in Stripes, right? We were talking about that before. Yeah, Warren Oates. Exactly. I mean, it's it's one of those things where they just stand up, they they butt heads because obviously one's got that, that different level of professionalism. The other one's still figuring out, honestly, they're trying to figure out what their style is. Yeah. 
Now, uh, the actors themselves actually wore their own clothes throughout the movie. In fact, Jamie Lee Curtis actually went to a JCPenney and picked out all of Lori's clothes. She said she spent like less than $100 on everything. <laughs> that's, basically, uh, that's basically like a student film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, uh, PJ Souls. Yeah. yeah, yeah, PJ Souls, who also plays Lori in the movie. Oh, uh, who also, uh, no, she plays Linda, I'm sorry. Uh, she's the one who, you know, works out the boobs and she gets killed by Michael. She's the girl, the phone girl. She's the one who gets killed by the phone. Yeah. Uh, she went to go see the movie with a regular audience, and um, when she did her nude scene, where she's like pops up, she's like, "See anything you like?" And some guy in the theater was like, "Hell yeah, I do!" <laughs> but apparently, she was there with her. She was there in the theater with her boyfriend, Dennis Quaid. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Dennis didn't appreciate that, and, but she was amused by it. But Dennis didn't appreciate that, so he's like, "That's a crazy story." So you better get your ass whooped by Dennis Quaid because you're talking about his girlfriend flashing her titties in the movie. Yeah, but I mean, like you gotta, you're gonna date an actress who's gonna get <laughs> dude on screen. Like, you, you gotta expect somebody's gonna say or do something like that. I mean, if you yeah, don't, watching, don't don't date somebody who's gonna do that. Yeah, you're watching a horror movie. You're both actors. Why are you tripping? Yeah, I mean, like if 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 she was like, I don't know, like uh, if she was a police officer or something, like somebody who wasn't at all involved in the business, then I'd be like, okay, I understand it. But I mean, like first of all, I'm not a fan of that which is why I didn't date or marry anyone who's an actress. I mean, that's just not, I, I get it. Yeah. Come on, man, you're an actor. You should understand that. Yeah, I get that. Uh, now, Deborah Hill, since we're talking about that, Deborah Hill actually wrote most of the, fe- all, most of, if not all, the female dialogue, whereas John Carpenter concentrated on all the stuff from Dr. Lewis. So, uh-huh. yeah, female uh-huh. touch, man. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, this is Jamie Lee Curtis's very first feature film. And she actually, apparently she was on the show uh, Petticoat Junction at the time. Okay. And she took, uh, and, she, and apparently it was like between seasons and she did that. She filmed this movie between seasons. Apparently she was only paid $8,000 for the entire movie. How much? 8000 8000 or eighty? Eight thousand. Okay. I was going to be like, damn, she made more than... And John did for writing. No, eight, just $8,000. Yep. <laughs> now, uh, the movie, and funny enough, the movie that Tommy, the little boy Tommy and Lori are watching is The Thing from Another World, which would be remade a couple years later by John Carpenter as The Thing, which we're going to go talk to a little bit later. Mm-hmm. I just love that the fact that they had the original in, the, in that movie. I thought that was cool. That's well, it shows he's been a longtime fan. Yeah. Now, uh, the main person in the... Um, the mask, who they referred to as the shape, uh, was a dude named Nick Castle, who was going to be the director himself. Now, Nick Castle's direction from John Carpenter was very minimal. I think the the main thing he would do, like uh, particularly the one scene where he, she, uh, he kills like some boyfriend or whatever, mm-hmm. and like uh, it comes out of the kitchen, you know, strings this dude up, stabs him in the chest, and leaves him hanging on the wall. Mm-hmm. The whole thing where he's like leaning his head over and just kind of examining him. That's John Carpenter stuff. Just not very little. Like, just look at it. And the whole thing of him, you know, when he gets killed, he just pop, pops back up. Look at this shit. Same thing, John Carpenter. And God knows how many goddamn horror movie characters have copied that since. You know? Oh, sure. Like, Jason did it. You know, who else? Uh, I think, like, Maniac Cop did it. Like, a bunch of people do it. So... Well, they, kind of set up the whole look. Yeah, there's two ways. There's two ways to look at a, at a monster, a killer, in a horror movie. You either have like 
the friends right. people are like we get into like Wes Craven, right? You, you talk about like uh, Freddy Krueger, he's sprinting after you and he's gonna he's gonna get you, or they're just slow, methodical, and they're taking their time. And then once they killed you, they've just kind of got that sick fascination going on with oh look what's happening to you. It's that, or yeah. they're like they're like rage-induced zombies coming to murder you. There's not a lot yeah. of claims. Yeah. So apparently, Laurie Strode, the character, was actually named after John Carpenter's very first girlfriend. Um, <laughs> that's, hey, hey, that's what it is. Uh, also, uh, Siskel and Ebert, before they kind of got big as film critics, uh, they actually talked about like their scariest movies or whatever they've ever seen. And uh, actually, Gene Siskel actually remarked that Halloween was probably the scariest movie he'd ever seen. So much so that he said he went and saw it at a local theater. He was so scared he took a cab home. And even though he lived, even though he lived two blocks from the theater, he took a cab home. And when he got to the house, he looked, went to a shower and checked his curtains. And then apparently, it really freaked out Gene's sister. All right. So as long as we're talking about scary movies, just as a quick aside, what is the scariest film you've ever seen? What ones made you turn on the lights? As an adult, not as a kid, as an adult. Probably Audition. The Japanese movie I told you about. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Did you ever see Quarantine? Yeah, I saw Quarantine. I don't know what you're talking about, but like, look, I like Audition because of the fact it was like real, like body horror. Like, you know, like this Japanese girl is doing these ungodly things to this guy. He can't do anything about it. He deserves it. He's an asshole. But at the same time, it's like, Jesus Christ, he can't do anything. She's like sawing off his like bones and shit with like piano wire slowly. Mm. And like, he can't, he can't, like, he's awake, but he's like sedated to the point where he can't do anything physically to stop her. So it's like, so he feels everything, but he can't do anything. It's so so awful. Quarantine's a great film, but it's that end sequence in night vision on that camera. Yeah. That is, that's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen with the film. I was probably like 21, 22 when I saw it. I literally yeah, I had to like, watch the behind the scenes because I, I was turning lights on and shit at night, walking downstairs. Because I mean, it was the the acting, the direction, the cut, everything. It's absolutely yeah. terrifying. And right now, since we're all quarantined, it's a great time to watch that movie and then stay at home and freak. <laughs> yeah, it's the perfect movie to watch when actually in quarantine. Yeah, because yeah, the CDC is uh, quarantined as so all. That's the whole point of the movies. If you've never seen the film. This yeah. lady's going on a ride-along with the fire department in L.A. They go to this yeah. stop, and it's a medical call inside an apartment building. They go mm-hmm. inside, and there's this weird virus, essentially, that's kind of infecting everyone in there. The CDC shows up, quarantines the building, and if you try to get out, they shoot you and gun you down so you can't get, that, get out with the virus. But this virus is, like, destroying people inside. So it's a killer, yeah. awesome. It's actually a remake of a French film called Record, R.E.C. Yeah. There's a couple other movies that used to scare the shit out of me when I was younger, like, uh, like of course, the aforementioned Killer Clowns from Outer Space fucked me up. Uh, <laughs> it, it, the original It fucked me up. Uh, there's a movie actually made by Trauma called Death by Temptation, D-E-F, like, you know, Death Comedy Jam by Temptation. It was a black horror movie, uh, basically, like, with this, like, vampire. It has, like, Kadeem Hardison in it, Sam Jackson's in it, like, uh, Bill Nunn and a couple other people. And it's like very gory and very disgusting, and like it, yeah, it really fucked me. There's one particular scene that, for for the longest time, I couldn't go near TV because of this particular scene. There's one scene where the Kadeem Hardison character is like going into a room, he's like doing like bullshit karate moves, talking about how badass he is and shit. TV turns on, and it shows him 
doing the same shit he did entering the room, but the him on the TV is talking to him. And it gets closer and closer and closer to the point where you see only the mouth on the TV screen. And Kadeem Hardison is just transfixed by this, you know, this is me on TV? Like, so transfixed by it. And things like, yeah, come closer, come closer. And the TV, he touches the TV screen and then it bites down on his hand and basically just gobbles him up into the TV screen. And then you see the mouth, once the body is gobbled up, you see the mouth doing like this, like, and then it spits out all his guts and entrails and shit. It fucked me up. I was like, no. That's a great trauma. <laughs> yeah, trauma. Very trauma. Yeah, very trauma, dude. It was like so gross, though. See, I would have been scared uh, of uh, chuds. Say that again? I said I would have been scared of chuds. Chud? Oh, yeah. you talk chud? Yeah, yeah. I see. I'll, I'll scare the parts of chud. But overall, like once I started watching, I was like, yeah, this ain't. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Trauma films, check them out. Talk about like some crazy ass B movies. <laughs> oh my god, they are so blatantly gross and disrespectful. They ain't funny. It's like you watch these movies, it's like, how the fuck did this get made? Well, like, it's so they're still making this shit. Yeah, I know they still are. And, like they're blatantly racist. They're blatantly just like misogynist. Like uh, you know, what I'm saying there's a whole bunch of body horror. Like people are constantly getting stabbed. You see old. There's one scene in like the Toxic Avenger where they actually run down a child and like fucking like they there's a little kid like riding a bicycle and like, like they uh some some teenagers like fucking run him over initially. He's on the ground squirming trying to get for help. They run him over again and run over his head. His brains and shit are splattered, they come out and start taking pictures of the shit. It's so disgusting. There's some weird <laughs> weird shit out there, but I gotta say, like, it's the weird thing. I, I haven't seen any movies that I can recall for a long time where, where I actually got scared of anything save for quarantine, honestly. Like, m- most of the films, because, like, they, they all follow a similar enough pattern, right? And a lot of it yeah. is very similar based off the, the Halloween trope, right? In terms of the way mm-hmm. they are supposed to progress with you set the stage, here's a little bit, just a little bit more of the, the mystical history of who or whatever the creature is, it's gonna come after you. Then the creature's chasing you, and then it kills everyone except for one person who gets away to tell the story, essentially. Of course. And yeah. so, like, because of that, it's so cinematic, I guess, that it doesn't really get me. But what's crazy about record is, uh, well, and, uh, and quarantine is it's found footage. Yeah. So yeah. it looks like you're reviewing actual footage, and it still manages to stay with the narrative. But mm-hmm. the biggest problem I had with Cloverfield was it was so jerky, right? Because they, they, they have it so it's done essentially amateur. So you've got amateurs that are running the camera, so it's all jerky and swinging it. I get freaking motion sickness watching that one. But record, because it's a professional cameraman who's going through, you know, ostensibly in the storyline, that's what makes it terrifying because the suspension of disbelief is pretty much non-existent. Yeah. Now, real quick, back to, uh, we talked about earlier how Shatner hated uh, freaking... Um, the whole thing of them, them using his mask. Uh, also, Mike Myers, SNL. He hated the fact that you know he was a kid when Halloween came out, and they say you know all these kids are fucking with him because the fact he has the same name of this killer. What and about the Mike Myers fan mental institution? That poor kid. It, like it's literally based on him. Yeah. True. How yeah, did you know insurance passed on that? I have no idea. 
True. That's now, errors, uh, John, errors and yeah. omissions for people who aren't in the business. Because normally, if if you can try tie something back to somebody specifically, the lawyer's mm-hmm. like, nah, 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 we don't want to risk getting sued. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, in terms of like Mike My- uh, Michael Myers movements, again, we talked about Nick Castle getting minimal direction. John Carpenter actually mentioned that he based Michael Myers movements on the Ewell Brenner character in Westworld, the original Westworld. Oh yeah. So the robot that he did, yeah, the robot that he was playing, he based a lot of Michael Myers on that character. Um, also, uh, in terms of the the cameo that we talked about, John Carpenter making a cameo in the movie, uh, Annie's boyfriend Paul, uh, the voice that you hear on the phone, that's John Carpenter. More than one way to get to him. He was Annie's boyfriend. <laughs> now, in terms of the overall scope of the movie. Halloween is a highly influential film in the horror genre. It's largely responsible for the popularization of slasher films, particularly in the 80s and even to now. And it basically helped develop the, the slasher genre. It's not the first slasher movie. Um, Black Christmas came out before it, and also Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out before it. Yeah. But it's really what, the, Halloween is really what established the common tropes that you see in those type of movies. Uh, so they, they popularized the final girl trope. There's always like the one last girl at the end, uh, killing off all the base, all the other characters that are substance abusers and like sexually promiscuous and also having a very unique theme song for the killer. Uh, and also doing a lot of scenes from the killer's perspective. They also stole that from John Carpenter. Uh, so, uh, they also, uh, you know, basically it became the blueprint of success for like Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. Scream, and then so many other like horror, uh, like holiday-based like slasher movies. What was the other one? Um, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, uh, ho- uh holiday shit. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Leprechaun. Yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was one called uh what uh April the thirteenth or something. April Fool's Day. Yeah, April Fool's Day is one. Uh, what was the other one? <laughs> It's only stupid ones, and then of course, uh, what's the other shit? Oh yeah, but yeah, just Friday Thirteenth, you know, April Fool's Day, all those crazy shits, whatever. You're trying to have some kind of damn killer. Yeah, these fucking flies are killing me right now. Like, you <laughs> know, my nerves. I know, loving it. Yeah, I, uh, I'm just swatting shit, and I'm trying to speak, <laughs> trying to explain. <laughs> Thank you, friend. You're gonna start yeah. doing three snaps in Z formation. It's gonna turn into a uh, in living color bit. Damn near shit. Um, now, in terms of like its ranking and different things, now uh, Halloween is actually ranked number sixty-eight by AFI's One Hundred Years, One Hundred Screams. Uh, it's ranked number fourteen on Bravo's One Hundred Scariest Movie Moments. Uh, the uh, Chicago Film Critics Association named it the thirty, the third scariest movie ever made, right? In uh, two thousand six, in two thousand eight, Empire Magazine selected it among the five hundred greatest movies of all time. In two thousand ten, uh, total film. Uh, picked it upon its um, 100 greatest movies of all time. Uh, in uh, 2017 uh, and also in 2018 for Complex and Pace Magazine, Halloween was named the best slasher film of all time. And lastly, uh, Michael Myers himself was ranked the greatest slasher villain of all time by LA Weekly. So, yeah. And also, more importantly, the movie was selected by in 2006 by the Library of Congress for film preservation. There you go. Yeah, preserved for all time. Halloween. Yeah. Now, next movie we're talking about, Escape from New York, which would be yeah. a movie to do right now. 
that is yeah that is my personal favorite of John Carpenter's films. Again, I watched it this morning before we even did this podcast, you know, and I'm very very happy that we both agreed that we we're gonna um, take a look at this movie and shit. Now, uh, John Carpenter himself first written the screenplay for Escape from New York in 1976 as a reaction to Watergate, you know, and he, uh, uh, initially the studios thought it was too dark and too violent, uh, but that changed after you know Halloween. He can pretty much write his own little ticket after that. Uh, he also cited the uh, Harry uh, Harrison sci-fi novel, uh, Planet of the Damned, as a large inspiration for uh, this movie. Because of the fact that movie, uh, that novel follows a dude named uh, Brian Brand who leaves a planet and is deserted on this desert planet called Dis uh, in a mission to prevent a global holocaust. And this guy basically has no choice but to do this job for the government. That's basically the whole premise of Snake Plissken in this movie had no choice but to do this thing for the government. Now, he also was inspired by Death Wish, the original Death Wish of Charles Bronson. He liked, he said he didn't agree with the movie's philosophy, but he did like the whole conveying New York as sort of like this jungle. Yeah. And he wanted to do it, but add a sci-fi edge to that. Uh, now, the studio executives, because the fact they mentioned uh, uh, Death Wish, they wanted Charles Bronson to play Snake Plissken. But John Carver was like, no, he's way too old. Nah, I wouldn't. Yeah. And also, another thing I want to go. Say that again. I said, and I, and I like Charles Bronson too, but uh, would have been a completely different film. Definitely, yeah. Uh, the name actual Snake Plissken again came from a real person. Uh, apparently, a friend of a friend of John Carpenter uh, said he knew this guy in high school, who was like sort of like the high school tough guy, or whatever. And um, one thing was noted about him was that he had a large tattoo of a snake on his body and hence he had the name snake plissken and to carpenter he's like anybody who's got a snake tattooed on him that's my kind of hero there you go. snake plissken was born now uh both nick nolte and jeff bridges were both approached to play snake plissken they both turned it down um also uh chris christopherson was also a candidate for snake plissken but they said no on that because uh, he had just done Heaven's Gate, and that was such a because of such a huge failure. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah it's like, no, I can't do Chris Christopherson. No, yeah. not right now, anyway. <laughs> the worst part about now, uh, when you do one screw like that, they put you in timeout. Exactly. Now, uh, as far as uh, the casting of Kurt Russell goes, uh, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell had worked together before. On a TV movie in 1979 called Elvis, where Kurt Russell played Elvis. I seen little snippets of it. It's actually a pretty good little movie. So, yeah. So, uh, so John Carpenter lobbied hard for Kurt Russell to play Snake Plissken, and also Kurt Russell himself pitched himself very hard because, in fact, he wanted to shake his Disney image because prior to this movie, he was named most mainly known as a Disney kid, yeah. and he. Yeah, he did like three movies in the 70s. Uh, the Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, Now You See Me, Now You Don't, and uh, The World's Strongest Man, which is my favorite of the three. He's played this kid named Dexter Riley, who's always getting into the, he's getting these like powers from different accidents and shit, and they were always temporary. And uh, and also, he was always uh, being um, uh, being a, uh, pursued by this uh, corrupt, corrupt criminal named uh, A.J. Arno, played by Cesar Romero. <laughs> so I always like to. He's chasing down Kurt Russell. 
Kurt Russell, man. Yeah. And then, of course, the famous thing about him being a Disney kid that well, supposedly Walt Disney's last words were Kurt Russell. And also that the last and also that the last letter that Disney ever wrote was to Kurt Russell. So well that's uh that's definitely something to carry with you. Oh yeah, definitely. Mm. Line that up real quick, folks. <laughs> what goes out when you spend so much time talking, you know? <laughs> yeah, it does. Was that a joke? Was that a dig? It wasn't a dig. <laughs> I was just explaining to folks who might not smoke cigars. They don't know. You got to keep it going or you have to relight. Okay. All right, man. <laughs> don't be sensitive. I'm just saying. <laughs> That's pretty. There's, there's some underlying shit there. <laughs> just, I'm just saying. Look, All right, now. At this point in time in our relationship, you can't even remotely be sensitive. Just let that shit go, man. Keep rolling. All right, I'm letting it go. All right, fine. All right, uh, Kurt Russell actually based Snake Plissken on a combination of different characters. Bruce Lee, Darth Vader, The Exterminator from the movie The Exterminator, and most notably, Clint Eastwood, particularly with Snake's voice. Now, because of the fact that Snake is based on Clint Eastwood, the whole uh, casting of Lee Von Cleef as a Hulk is also kind of like crazy. It's like, oh, this is a crazy, crazy coincidence, you know what I'm saying? So... And it worked out well because every time, every scene they did together, you know, he did that, you know, low Clint Eastwood type brow to uh, Levon Cleef. And it worked very well. Now, shooting of the movie uh, began in late 1980 uh, with a $7 million budget, which at the time was the largest budget that John Carpenter had ever worked with. And the shooting schedule, which lasted three months, was also the longest and most uh, logistically complex. Uh, they employed a 180-person crew, fully union, which is also new for John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, uh, because they used smaller crews that were either non-union or partially union. Uh, the, the eye patch for Snake Plissken is actually Kurt Russell's idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kurt Russell has since stated that of all his characters and of all his films, this is his favorite character and his favorite movie, Snake Plissken and Escape from New York. It changed his career. It really did. If you look, if you look at it. Before that, like I said, yeah, before that, he was a Disney kid. After that, he's, now he's a leading man. Probably to put it in modern terms for, uh, for people in our, our demo a little more, it was, like, um, it was like when Matt Damon finally went out and did the Born Identity, completely shifted his persona. Or another one, Chris Pratt, when he went from yeah. Parks and Rec to Guardians of the Galaxy. Same although, thing. although you, I think I have to argue though that Guardians of the Galaxy was just like instead of being Andy Dwyer, the lovable screw up, he was Andy Dwyer, but he actually gets his shit right. Because I mean, he doesn't like with what he did with what he did in the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, he never really kind of shifted into that same kind of forced to be reckoned with gruff demeanor. He's always kind of maintained that same lovable fun kind of comedic atmosphere about him so that's the only reason i would i would go with the other ones because you basically went from matt damon who's kind of like you know essentially he's kind of soft like then talented mr ripley he'd done uh goodwill hunting those types of dramatic roles to like suddenly he's like he's a Jason assassin you don't want to mess with and he'll kill you yeah and also since we're talking about chris pratt and uh, the whole thing he actually said in the interviews that part of his inspiration was kurt russell particularly kurt russell in big trouble and also that 
because of the, how inspired he was by Kurt Russell. That's why they cast Kurt Russell in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 as uh, Peter, as uh, his father, Peter Quill's father. That must have been so awesome for him. It, it just works, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I mean, for, for, so what? Scott, for Chris, Chris Pratt, that must have been awesome for him to get to work with Kurt in that Kurt role. Russell, yeah, I was like, yo, fuck yeah, Kurt Russell, man, yeah. Uh, now, um, in terms of like different things, uh, the, the, the look he wanted for this particular movie, he wanted two distinct looks. He wanted one to be a police state, very high tech, lots of neon, the United States dominated by this by underground computers, you know what I'm saying? And that was easy to shoot compared to the, you know, Manhattan Island prison sequences that were, you know, very few lights, mainly torch lights, and very pretty much like feudal England. All those you know, that's how you describe it. So, and also he said this is actually the first film that should be shot on uh, Liberty Island beneath the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. And you can actually see yeah. you can actually see the shot of like a helicopter going across the Statue of Liberty on Liberty Island. And apparently that is the only shot of New York in Escape from New York. Just that one shot of the helicopter going across the Statue of Liberty. And then you see there's a transition from there to like the prison facility that they have. And that's like somewhere else. That's basically the studio. But there's just that look, like I say, just the one shot of New York. Crazy. Not too bad. Not too bad at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also, there's another helicopter shot in the movie, too, where, the, um, where they're supposed to be flying over Central Park, but Central Park is like all like wooded out now. There's like no you know, trails and nothing like that. That was actually shot in San Fernando, California. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, and the main thing that was supposed to be in New York is basically East St. Louis. Yeah. Apparently some shit happened where there was like a fire, like in the 70s, and like most of those buildings around there were like basically condemned, and they're just sitting there laying there, and it's like, you know, this looks, looks kind of like New York, and it wouldn't cost nowhere near as much money, so let's just use that. And also he, apparently John Carpenter taught the people who did power there to knock out the power in a 10-block radius. So yeah, he got so you see like did you uh, did you see that thing about the bridge that he bought? Yeah, for a dollar. For a dollar, they shot on it. It's the it was it the old chain of rocks bridge? Shot yeah, it and then, and then, and then told it back to him for a buck again. But for a dollar, yeah, <laughs> for a dollar. Literally, they just did that so that they could privatize it, so that they could do whatever the hell they wanted without getting in trouble and having to deal with permits. And then once they stole it back to him, like. Okay, well, that was a nice legal workaround. Yeah. So the movie itself was shot from August to November 1980. Now, John Carver himself said he, like, he, like, that was, it was a very demanding shot on him. He said, basically, they would finish shooting at around 6 a.m., then they go to bed around 7, and then the, that's when the sun would be coming up. Then they wake up around 5, 6 o'clock p.m., uh, depending on whether they had dailies or not. And then by the time they actually got you know, going or wherever the sun is actually setting, so there's actually a two two and a half month period where he never saw daylight. Hmm. So that's that cool. <laughs> oh yeah, another cool thing: uh, the uh, computer graphics that they have in the movies in certain scenes, particularly and more prominently the the gold wing, the uh, the gold fire flying scene over New York, mm-hmm. and it has the computer screen, whatever. Uh, that actually was not 3D effects, despite what people were thinking. Basically, it's just a black model, and they put like this. Uh, white like uh bright tape on there like on all the buildings and stuff and they shot it a certain way and that's why it looks like 3d and all this other stuff basically just it's basically just a black model 
with tape on it, and they just ran a camera through it. Well, and they, they also had uh, some killer mats because back then you were still shooting uh, a lot of stuff with mats. If people don't know what that is, Google that real quick. Um, yeah, but look at matte paintings. Yeah. That, and that's an artistry that's been basically lost because now we go CGI, everything's just green screen, so they cut around it. But look at old school movies where you see the background of a movie, it looks like it's painted. It's because it is painted. <laughs> and... Uh, and in these particular um, mats, I believe, were done by the Corman Company, Roger Corman's company, mm -hmm. one of which who did uh, prominent work on this movie, James Cameron, who, of course, will go on to be you know, the director of The Terminator and Avatar and uh, had, be, had the record for the highest grossing movie of all time for like 20 years until Avengers came along. But yeah, that's another story for another day. Is that adjusted for inflation? Yeah. Okay, just checking. <laughs> yeah, actually, yes. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, the opening narration and the computer voice in the in prison complex is a very is an uncredited Jamie Lee Curtis. So at the beginning of the movie, we should talk about like the crime rate in America has gone up 400. percent We should talk about like the whole. She's pretty much giving the whole layout of the movie in terms of like Manhattan Island is a prison Wait, now. With yeah, I, I love the I love the end the little ending line she does like uh there are no guards there. Prisoners and the worlds they have created. There's only one rule: once you go in, you don't come out. <laughs> very simple and like very effective too. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis is the voice, is the narrator voice. I think she did it again for Escape from L.A. Yeah, I don't know that for sure. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, she wasn't credited for either one, so yeah. I'm, I'm, saying, I'm pretty sure. sure. I'm pretty sure it's her. Yeah. And again, she's got that that long term relationship with. Uh, with John and like, I mean, that's the reason she has the career she has. Yeah. Uh, another fun fact: both John Carpenter and uh, Kurt Russell both with their work with their ex-wives in this movie. Because <laughs> uh, John Carpenter was married to Adrian Barbeau, who plays Maggie, and Kurt Russell was married to uh, Summer Hubley, who plays the girl in that chock full of nuts diner or whatever, uh, yeah. before she gets eaten by the, the street crazies. Yeah, that's, that was Kurt Russell's wife. <laughs> Must have been a hell of a shit. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm sure it was. <laughs> uh, Kurt Russell actually said he actually found it necessary to remove the eye patch between scenes because of the fact he kept, kept fucking with his depth perception. So, Why that? Yeah. Now, the theme itself, again, composed by John Carpenter, the da -da -da, da -da -da. That shit, I love that theme song. Again, which one of his songs do you hate? Shit. Trick question. You don't hate any of them. No, 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 no. I'll give you an answer. I wasn't, I wasn't crazy about the one for they live. For which one? For they live. Okay. No, I wasn't crazy about that one because, like, it, I don't know. It's just like it, at certain times it seemed too happy for a John Carpenter movie. Yeah, I'll give you that. So that's just a, that's just me. Oh, that is one of the <laughs> crazier movies, but we'll get to that. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Now, uh, basically, this movie was done on synthesizers with uh, the help of Alan Holworth, who were going to do a bunch of other Carpenter movies, like They Live and Be Trouble in Little China and shit like that. Uh, now, the use of synthesizers at this point was like kind of like weird because the fact that most mainly 
Hollywood was kind of an orchestral beast, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, they used all orchestra stuff. Now, John Carpenter with the, with the you know, pulsing, like, bass things, like, the, like, and all that shit or whatever, like, he kind of popularized the use of um, synthesizers in a lot of other movies, particularly action, horror, and sci-fi. There was a lot of synthesizers, particularly in the 80s. And well, you can see how... Right, I mean, yeah. that's indie film background because again, like you said, most everything else you watch, anything else from that that time frame or even right after, it was mm-hmm. still heavily or- orchestral, and that's because that was traditional Hollywood. That was studio Hollywood. Yeah, and now even now, it sets it set the standard for like certain like uh like certain like filmmakers who want to throw a little indie ch- like a little retro charm on their movies, so they'll do the whole uh, retro synthesizer thing like uh the, the score for Drive. That yeah. movie, also like uh, what's this shit? Uh, it follows. Yeah, yeah. That's basically, that's a John Carpenter score right there for It Follows. Like check that out. Uh, also, uh, since we're talking about the influence of it, um, the video game director Adil uh, Kojima actually referenced the movie as an influence on his work, particularly the Metal Gear Solid series. And Solid Snake is based very clearly on Snake Plissken. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a killer franchise. Very much a homage. It's not billions at this point because it's been around. They're like from what, like the seventh or eighth iteration of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, one of my favorite things of the movie is that everybody, whenever they see Snake Plissken or talk to Snake Plissken, they're like, "I heard you were dead." <laughs> that line. They actually borrowed that from uh, the the uh, John Wayne movie, Big Jake, from 1971. Oh yeah. Same thing. Whenever he would say his name, someone like, I thought you were dead. And also a weird, also a weird fact, uh, everybody who says, I thought you were dead in this movie ends up dead. What you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 thought you were dead. Well, you are dead. Your so, turn. There you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Your turn. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, one night when they was shooting in St. Louis, uh, Kurt Russell apparently encountered uh, some like local thugs. But he was dressed in the Snake Plissken costume with the eye patch and the gun. And it was like, and it was like, okay, yeah, this is gonna work. <laughs> this would be cool. So, yeah, it's like I don't want to fuck with him. Like, so <laughs> yeah, it's funny that they actually worked though. The only only time I've heard something similar to that uh, was it uh, Ving Rams, wasn't it? No, well, no, what was his name? Um, Viggo Morganson. He was in uh, Eastern Promises. Remember, he's got all the tattoos like he's a Russian mobster. He had all that shit on. The Russian, yeah, the Russian guy. He went to go sit down and have dinner at some, uh, some Russian restaurant in, uh, in, in uh, London. And, like, everyone there was just like, oh, shit, like, big eyes, like, watching him when he came in and sat down and everything. So he said when he left, he went back to talk with the, uh, the makeup team and everyone was like, I think this works. I think this works. Everybody's scared of me. Yeah, because people – because everybody's intimidated by it. I get that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, because, I mean, especially, like, in those situations, like, if you can run into essentially the same population that you're trying to emulate, and mm-hmm. they're picking up on all the cues and everything, and they're going, okay, like, this is somebody not to mess with, like, Snake, like, hanging out with, like, you know, a bunch of thugs and stuff, and it scares them. Or, or Vigo um, dressed up as a Russian mobster, and he goes to a Russian diner, and Russian people are like, oh, crap, we got to watch out for that dude. That's when you know you're cooking with gas. Yeah. Uh, funny enough, uh, there's also a little trademark in this movie. Uh, there's some minor characters in the movie named Cronenberg, uh, Romero, Taylor. There's a nod from John Carpenter to some other directors like uh, David Cronenberg, George Romero, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, Levon Cleef was only apparently he only did like one sh- one day of shooting for this movie, which is crazy. All his scenes were done like all his scenes were done in like one day, and uh, which is crazy when you think about it because he's in a lot of scenes. Yeah, but yeah, all this stuff was done in one day, and then apparently they had some issues because some of his close-ups were kind of blurry. They, they they tried to get him back, they couldn't afford it, so they basically just did a couple scenes with a stand-in. But yeah, uh, also during the scene, he actually had like some issues walking because he apparently had like this knee issue from a new movie he did years prior that never really healed up. Uh, apparently, Ricardo Montalban has something similar, where like he got injured, and like you see like. Ricardo has a certain like walk or whatever when he like is in the movies, and it's because of the fact he had this injury that he never you know got looked at because hmm. his work. So crazy. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else here. I mean, there's a lot uh, of carpenter specific, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's basically all the stuff I got for uh, Escape from New York. You got anything else? No, not that's not Carpenter specific. We could go into this movie for a while, but we could we we still got other films to get to. We've only gotten through two so far, so we should keep rolling. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, all right. So next one, the thing. All right, yeah. my personal, yeah, one of my personal favorite horror movies, and also John Carpenter said of his movies, this is his personal favorite. So okay. yeah, and it's also John Carpenter's first foray into major studio filmmaking. Uh, now they've been attempting to do like uh, the uh, apparently the, the story of the thing for a couple of years or whatever, and do uh, adaptations of the original story. Who goes there? Uh, but no one ever really got to the point where they actually did like how the original was set up, like where that, where it's like this like killer that can like assume different forms. Uh, they did the original, the main movie that everybody knows, the thing from another world, and it was basically just this giant Frankenstein monster. Uh, and he, while John Carpenter does love that movie, he's like, you know, I want to do the original story. So that's what he went with. Now, the opening title, when they have the thing, where they have the thing coming up and he's burning into the screen or not. So what they did was they basically had an animation cell done with the thing logo on it. And it was basically uh, behind this giant fish tank with smoke in it. And they also uh, kept they covered the animation cell with uh, this like plastic, like almost like a plastic bag or whatever. And so to get the proper effect, they also had the light in the back, whatever it, it was showed down with. So to get the proper effect, all he did was like lit the uh, the animation cell, the plastic bag around the animation cell, and that's what gives you the effect of it burning into the screen with the lights and all that shit. Mm-hmm. I was like, I always like that intro too. Yeah, it is a killer, killer opening shot. Like we talk about setting the table, right? That puts you in yep. a really disturbed frame of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, uh, for uh, this movie, he, John Carpenter wanted to do a different type of horror movie. He wanted to do a group of intelligent, well-read guys going up against this otherworldly creature, uh, challenging everything they know, instead of going through the whole slasher trope where it's like this killer going up against a bunch of dumbass kids and shit. Uh, yeah, so he really liked the idea, and also liked the isolation of uh, a bunch of people being stuck together and the paranoia that comes with that, which is really prevalent in this movie. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, this is also the first John Carpenter movie that he did not score himself. The movie score is actually done by Ennio Morricone, uh, also another Sergio Leone uh, uh, alumni. And uh, I just, it's very, it almost sounds like a, it's like him attempting to do a John Carpenter theme, like the dun, 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 dun. They're, it's all it is, really. Just that, that repeating thing <laughs> over and over. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I mean, but, I uh, go this but it's very – you didn't, you didn't know that? Sorry, you cut out. You didn't that. know that? I said you didn't know that? Know what? Uh, that uh, Ennio Marconi did the script. I thought, so, I thought that's what you said. Oh, no, no. I, I know that, but I'm saying it makes sense that he has it sound so much like a John Carpenter score because you got to make sure the director likes what you're doing. So listen to his shit, emulate it, and then guess what? You hit a home run. There you go. Now, the budget for this movie was actually $15 million, which was larger than most of the other horror movies at that point. Uh, like the original Friday the 13th was like $700,000 to make. The original Halloween, of course, was $300,000 to make. So, yeah, it's bigger budget. Uh, also, the movie apparently the the the, uh, the the scene in the script that sold him in terms of making the movie is the blood test scene. Mm. Where they're like sitting together, all the uh, collecting all the blood in the petri dishes, and he doing the thing with the yeah. That that's the that's the, like I'm making this. I'm making this movie. Yeah. So killer. Oh, for sure. Oh uh, yeah. And also, uh, they did the, most of the scenes were actually done on the refrigerator lots on Universal. And the funny thing enough was it was actually a heat wave in LA, of course, during that time frame. And one thing that Kurt Russell remembers when he first came to the first day of shooting was there was this big sign welcoming Dolly Parton and, and uh, Burt Reynolds because they were filming the biggest little whorehouse in Texas in the same lot. So I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but but you're you're jumping over ridiculous about about the refrigerated set they're on. So it's 100 degrees in LA. They kept the sets at 40 mm-hmm. degrees to make sure it gave that good chilling effect. You know, get a little bit of the breath and all that kind of stuff going on. So what's insane is the electrical bill even back then through the freaking roof for this thing. Because normally, like at most, if maybe you've got like an A-lister who you know they want stuff cool like. Maybe they'll put, okay, it has to be 68 degrees or 70 degrees on stage, something like that, but 40 freaking degrees. And those, if you've never been on a sound stage before, 25, 30-foot ceilings, I mean, mm-hmm. massive, massive cubic footage that you have to keep freezing cold. Yep. It's insane. Yeah. Now, uh, while this is going on to be a great, big uh, cult favorite for a lot of people, it did not perform well when it was initially, uh, initially uh, released. Mainly because of the fact it went up against another alien movie, E.T., the extraterrestrial. So, yeah, that's, yeah it wasn't winning against E.T., unfortunately. Uh, and it, it actually, John Carpenter took the you know, box office failing of this movie personally. Uh, like he, he was really hurt by it. You know what I'm saying? But, I mean, you're going up against Spielberg, and you're going up against a family-friendly kind of version of that whole thing. Like... It's not, it's not even fair, honestly, to be at the box office at the same time. I mean, if people have decided they want to go with the friendly alien, the one that's come to town to make all of us, you know, realize that better part of our nature, you can't put that up against something that's like literally an alien slasher film. Yeah. It's just bad, bad release time. They should have held it for another year. Yeah. And since we talked about the Ennio Marconi uh, script, uh, score, um, funny enough, uh, and we talked about this, uh, I think, in another podcast. A lot of the unknown, unused music from the thing here was actually used by Quentin Tarantino for Hateful Eight. And funny enough, it won uh, Ennio Marconi the Oscar, his first Oscar. And like, it, it, I, I just love the irony that his very first Oscar in his long career was basically consisted of unused music that he used for a 1982 movie. 
you know what? As long as you get it, you get it. <laughs> oh man, you froze again. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, can you see me? Yeah, there you go. Can you see me? Yep, I got you. All right, my eyes are fucked up. But yeah, okay. So, but uh, yeah, actually, another thing that was really funny that I read about was uh, apparently three of the three of the co-stars in the movie were apparently uh, actually arguing about John Carpenter behind the scenes. But the fucked up part about it is they were all mic'd up, so John <laughs> Carpenter heard everything. <laughs> He actually came. He actually came up to him ten minutes later. Like I heard everything you guys said. And they were like, "Oh shit!" They were basically scared that they were gonna be fired. And they were arguing over some scene or some shit. And they thought like he, they, they thought that John Carpenter was making a bad call, and they kind of cussed him out for it. Yeah, that's what it was. So. Well, he had to really wand him after that. <laughs> yeah, like freaking like you might you want to you might want to chill on uh, what you said because like I know how you really feel now. Mm-hmm. So I'll take you out in any moment. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, again, uh, Nick Nolte was approached again for another John Carpenter movie. He turned it down again. I don't know why the hell Nick Nolte is turning down all these good ass movies. But I mean, you can go down the list of questionable decisions Nick Nolte's made. So, <laughs> but these are really questionable. We'll be here for the rest. Especially, of the especially for his career, though. I'm like, God, like look. I'm like, I'm like, look at this. Are you serious? Like, Nick Nolte turned this down. Nick Nolte turned that down. Like, God damn, Nick. Nick Take Nolte a movie, man. his job, but he got drunk. True. <laughs> <laughs> now, the famous beer that uh, worked out very well for Eddie Murphy. Now, the uh, the famous beer that Kurt Russell has in the movie is McCready. Took him a year to grow. So, uh, just used beer gum and got it done the day of. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently, uh, John uh, Kurt Russell's favorite line in the movie is uh, when uh, the one character looks at the, the spider head crawling and says, uh, "You gotta be fucking kidding me." That line—that's uh, Kurt Russell's favorite movie, and also my favorite line in the movie too. Because like, yeah, are you fucking kidding me? Like, we just barbecued this thing and it's still going. Mm-hmm. Like, that was screwing me up too. I, I can't lie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else here. Uh, in terms of the art, go ahead. Oh, no, I just said it's frustrating to be in that position. Like, barbecued and it's still going. That's what I'm saying. It's like it's like a never-ending Extremely marriage. frustrating. Now, uh, Keith David plays the character Childs in the movie. He's kind of like the main opposition from the McCready character. Now, there were several other black actors considered for Childs. Bernie Casey, uh, Isaac Hayes, Jeffrey Holder, Ernie Hudson and Carl Weathers. About Jim Brown. I don't know Jim Brown, but all these other actors will consider it and they will keep David. This is a good choice. Was OJ acting yet? Was OJ acting yet? I think he was pretty close. I think, yeah. I think he was. (laughs) Could you imagine? Well, well, he did Roots. OJ did Roots. So, yeah, he was acting. Oh, yeah, that's right. But could you imagine him in that role? No, no, I, I really can't. I'm just, I'm just saying because like, like he he had some stuff there that was all right, but I mean, oh my god, dude, I I, it would have turned the thing into a damn comedy, I think. I think it would have too. Uh, uh, also, uh, some other people that famous comedians that also auditioned for this movie 
Jay Leno, Gary Shandling, and uh, Charles Fleischer. What was I was like, who the fuck is Charles Fleischer? Roger Rabbit. Oh, okay. The voice of Roger Rabbit, yeah, huh? No, I said yeah, what, Charles Fleischer's Robert. Yeah, but what would, what was Gary auditioning for? What what role? Uh, I think it's the uh, character of Gnarls, uh played by T.K. Carter, the black guy in the skates, who was also a stand-up comedian at that time. They went with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah. It, <laughs> that's who. That's who got it. <laughs> no, I'm just. I'm imagining Gary Shandling in that role. As a black as a black guy on the skates, yeah, I can, I can or Jay Leno. <laughs> oh. oh man, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, oh, uh, apparently, remember the one scene where they had like the giant thing of the well, one of the things on like a operating table, like Wilford Brimley, like taking it apart. Like you know, like you know, just going through it and ripping out the organs and all this stuff. Yeah. Apparently, Wilfred Brimley himself was the only person that grossed out by that scene because the fact that uh, he was like you know a cowboy for real and yeah. you know raising like, hunting animals and gunning animals. So he's like, this, this is it's pretty much like picking up his laundry. For him. He said he's like picking up my laundry, man. <laughs> it, ain't nothing, it was nothing for him. Well, I mean, it's, if, you, if you've been a hunter and you've ever had to do anything like that, it's a it's a different world from uh, all the city dwellers just pick up their meat at the market. Yeah. Uh, apparently, of, of the negative reviews that were given largely for the fame, the one that really got John Carpenter's goals, one uh, critic called him a pornographer of violence. And he's like, really? All these other movies I've done, this is the one that's a pornographer of violence? I just think it's funny that they were going with it that early on because they had no idea how bad it was going to get in another 15 years. Exactly. The time you hit hostile and shit. Or, oh my god! Uh, yeah. Uh, just, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, it would give a, it a lot more gross. Yeah, or just like go to like seven or like movies Not like that. That was that was mid eighties, wasn't it? Like they already had freaking trauma out there. Like that's the real pornographer of violence. For real. I mean, for real, bro. Because yeah, all it was is like boob, boobs and, and and things exploding. That's basically all trauma is. Well, that's uh, what he's now, uh, on Carpenter because uh, he, I mean, he doesn't even come close to that. Nope, I agree with that. Um, now, uh, Carpenter's favorite line of the movie is one from McCready, where he's like, uh, "Trust is a hard thing to come by these days," which for him encapsulates encapsulates everything the thing is about. Yeah. It's one simple line: "Trust is a tough thing to come by these days." It's really very well written line, man. Uh, it's yeah, still yeah, it's true. <clears throat> and uh, some other <laughs> some other reviews they they really went in on thing, man. Oh wow! Uh, some critics described it as instant junk, a wretched excess, and one actually proposed it as the most hated film of all time. <laughs> really? Mm. However, some other ones praised the special effects and those was cool, etc., etc. But, oh, wow, really? Now, the film itself, of course, found its audience on uh, home video and TV, and it's since become a cult classic, and actually has been reappraised by a lot of those critics that shit on it when it was first released, and now it's been called one of the great sci-fi horror films of all time. And uh, a lot of other directors have noted how influential the thing is on their work. Uh, now, in terms of some of the accolades that the movie had, 
uh, it was selected again. Go, 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 go. Just gotta jump in and say that that that's a common theme that we keep seeing, especially with a lot of these older films that we kind of fall in love with the cult classics, stuff like that, is that a lot of times the initial reception is negative. And I think there's, to some extent, almost like a group think thing that's occurring, right? Because it's a small, like if you talk about, it's even smaller now than it used to be. But if you think about film critics that had any kind of a national or, or major regional impact, it's a really, mm -hmm. really small and insular group. So you'll notice if you go back through a lot of these older films from the 70s and 80s, you'll, if you, if you, kind of watch it historically, a lot of them got horrible reviews from whoever it was, you know, be it Siskel and Ebert, or, or I mean, you can go for the Daily Variety, right. on and on and on down the list. And they go back after it's been 10, 15 years, and they'll look at them, they'll reevaluate because that's their business. And they look at it with a fresh mind because it's almost like whoever the first one is out the door that hits it with, oh, this is a garbage thing. I mean, if, they, if they've decided the thing is crap, and they've decided to write the most negative review they can, then nobody wants to be in a position to have to argue for the merits of something against somebody else because now you get into essentially an argument over nothing more than aesthetic preferences, right? I mean, there's, yep. at the end of the day, everything is subjective when it comes to film. There's movies you like that I don't like. There's movies I like that you don't like. There's movies that we all have. There's that friend who's like their guilty pleasure or whatever it is. Completely but I think the really kind of sick twist that you've been running into with uh, film critics in particular is that there's almost like this sensibility that we all need to agree. And if you don't agree with us, then you can get pushed out of the group. And it's, it's unfortunate for stuff like the thing where it gets hammered and it has to be 15, 20 years later when you have enough of the generation that they didn't care about it. They're not involved in film critiquing. They're just fans who are now coming into filmmaking. They can come back and they can resurrect it. Yeah, and like we was talking about, like since then, it's been considered basically one of the greatest horror films ever made, a classic of the genre. Uh, Empire Magazine selected it for its 500 greatest movies of all time. Uh, Complex Magazine uh, called it the ninth best movie of the 80s. Uh, also, they also called it the greatest genre remake film of all time. Uh, and also, uh, Entertainment Weekly ranked it as the 12th scariest movie ever made. And then other uh, publications have cited it as like the best sci-fi movie, one of the best sci-fi movies they've made. IGN put it at number four. Let's put it at number 12 on their list. Uh, Pace Magazine, 31. Esquire Magazine, 32. Uh, number 76 on Rotten Tomatoes. And the ninth highest, and is also named the ninth greatest uh, horror film of all time by Rolling Stone. So, they got its due. Yep, it took a while, but they finally got there. Oh, yeah. Uh, they Live. <laughs> John Carpenter's They Live. I love They Live, man. Like I said, the only thing I don't like about They Live is really the score. Uh, but this one's, this one's definitely more of a cult, a cult classic. Very much so, yes. Now, it's based on a short story called 8 O'Clock in the Morning by uh, Ray Nielsen for the uh, magazine of fantasy and science fiction from 1963. Uh, basically, it's more or less like kind of like a invasion of the body snatcher type deal. Uh, John Carpenter describes it as a DOA type of uh, story in which a man is put in the trance by stage hypnotist. When he wakes, he finds that the entire human race has been hypnotized, and that alien creatures are actually controlling humanity. Uh, he only has until eight o'clock in the morning to solve his problem. That's the name of that original story. Uh, John Carpenter got the rights to that movie and used it pretty much as a critique of Reaganomics. 
uh, more or less is a, <laughs> it's a vehicle to take on Reaganism, as he calls it. Uh, now, They Live was shot over eight weeks uh, from March to April of 1988, mainly in downtown LA, and it cost about $4 million to make. Uh, several people were considered for the lead role of John Nada, uh, Alec Baldwin, Michael Bean, Brian Bronston, Michael Keaton, Tommy Lee Jones, Alexander, Alexander Lambert, I'm assuming Christopher Lambert, uh, Dolph Lundgren, Michael Madsen, Bill Paxton, Ron Perlman, Patrick Swayze, uh, John claude Van Damme, and Bruce Willis were all considered. You know, as political as Alec Baldwin's gotten, I bet he kicks himself now for passing on this film. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, and also Kurt Russell, since we talked about Kurt Russell. But um, John Carmen's like, you know what? I just did like my last three movies with Kurt Russell. Let's go, let's go with somebody else. Let's change it up. Let's change it up a little bit. So he changed it up in a big way, and he picked Roddy Piper. Rowdy Roddy Piper. Mm-hmm. WWE Hall of Famer as the role of John Nada. <laughs> now, I'm a huge High Rod fan, man. Like, if you ever see some of his, his promos, particularly from the 80s, on he had Piper's Pit, fucking hilarious. And then, of course, the fact he always, he's also whipping folks' ass with it. So, like, it just makes it even, even better. And, like, and this also with Roddy Piper, this also is a great debate with me. Uh, and Roddy Piper has mentioned this as well. Now, when the whole Hulk Hogan thing started in the 80s, um, they needed a great villain to kind of kick him off. The villain they picked was Roddy Piper. Now, that comes the great debate. Now, did he come to see these events to see Hulk Hogan? Or did you come to these events to see Hulk Hogan beat the shit out of Roddy Piper? Because they hated Roddy, man. Roddy had legit what they call heat. Like, pe- like people hated Roddy everywhere he went, man. He was you know what? racist. You know what? He was mean. I think, I think he, he honestly, he's the guy who inherited the mantle from Andy Kaufman in, as far as wrestling goes. Like, Andy Kaufman, when he was involved in pro wrestling, was the most hated man in America at a minimum, possibly the world, until yeah. Roddy Piper. Yeah. I, it's, I think it's a fair assessment because by then – wrestling was so much bigger people had a yep. better understanding of the genre and the language as to what's actually happening in the storytelling and yep. i mean he was fantastic at being hated exactly and then the same thing like what why why i think wrestlers get a lot of flack is because there's a little part acting wrestling because they do a lot of improv they do a lot of you know the promos that they do that's that stuff they write themselves you know what I'm saying? and then they have to convey this they have to convey a character whether it be you know uh bodybuilding from Venice Beach with huge arms, what you're going to do, you know, that kind of shit, or like a flamboyant macho man, you know, that type of deal, or maybe even like a dude with a giant snake or a dude who has like hedge clippers who's a barber. Like, whatever that character is, they have to convey it. They have to fully commit to it because you don't, you don't yeah, fully commit to it. it. Yeah, the fans don't fully commit to it. So, and then on top of that, the physicality that comes with wrestling. Um, the fact, because of the fact that you know, what I'm saying they're doing the stuff 300 plus days a year, they're in great shape. Some of them don't look like they're in great shape, but they're in great shape. I mean, the, the reality uh, is, the one one form of entertainment that is entirely dominated by stuntmen and women. <clears throat> Every last one of those guys is a stunt performer that's doing some crazy stuff. They're putting their bodies on the line in a lot of ways. They've you know, mm-hmm. got varying degrees of how good they are at acting, as far as the character side of stuff goes. Uh, and the improvisational, but again, there, there are some killer, killer stunt performers. Exactly. Now, uh, 
John Carpenter picked Roddy Piper specifically after seeing WrestleMania three, which is the big one that everybody remembers because of the Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan match. Now, um, he spoke, he wrote the uh, role of uh, Nada, like Nada himself was like, it's kind of like Roddy himself. Like, it was in, unintentionally meant to be Roddy because Roddy was uh, actually a person who was homeless at one point. Uh, he was a drifter. He was like anti-authoritarian and things of that nature, which is perfect for John Nada. So Roddy had to encapsulate a lot of that. So, And apparently John Carpenter has been a wrestling fan ever since he was a little kid. Apparently he wrote a column for the Ring magazine when he was a kid too. So good for, good for John, you know what I'm saying? And uh, of course, uh, Vince McMahon did not want Roddy Piper to do this movie <laughs> at all. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> and then John Carpenter's like, "Yeah, I figured that." So what Man was doing, like, "Hey, um, don't do that movie. Just hang on a little bit, and then I'll find another movie, and you probably get paid the same amount of money." Okay, just hang on. Uh, which he knew was a bull- which Roddy knew was bullshit. But he just wanted to keep him around so he could work him a little bit more. You know what I'm saying? Just kind of placate him. Uh, but because of the fact that Roddy was adamant on doing this movie with a major film, a major uh, film director, John Carpenter. He actually had to quit the WWF to do it. So, that, funny enough, that WrestleMania three match is actually a quote unquote retirement match for Roddy Piper. Yeah, but you got to keep in mind too, just in the whole WWF thing and everything that was going on with McMahon, we can get behind the scenes what was going on with him and Hulk Hogan, right? Because there's a lot of wrestlers mm-hmm. that hate on both Hulk Hogan and on McMahon because some of the shit they were pulling. So, I mean, at least at least Rowdy was sharp enough and a student enough to be like, I'm getting played, I gotta get out, I gotta take my shot. Because we're gonna, do a, we're, we're gonna do a classic we're gonna do a classic WWF episode. I know uh, we, we should. I think it'd be killer, man. All right. Yeah. Uh but uh like I said, mainly another main reason the fact that he had to get away from McMahon because of fact McMahon is a control freak, which is very well known. Oh yeah. Uh, and funny enough when Roddy said Roddy said when I came back I was twice as important than I was before. <laughs> Because I did this movie and I had all the star power, and I mean, pretty much he could call his own shots there. And Roddy did come back for sporadic things in the WWF, but he would leave. He would come in for a run and he would leave. He'd come in for a run and then he would leave because he could do that now because he was a legit movie star. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, Roddy Piper also married man at the time. He actually refused to take off his wedding ring uh, for the movie. That's why you see a wedding ring on the screen. They never explained the wedding ring. So. Well, he was married to a lady named uh, Kitty uh, pretty much his entire wrestling career. She pretty much like the, the fact, no, no, pretty much like uh, from the 80s on, she was, he was married to her and she stuck with him through all that shit. Man. So kudos to her. Uh, she, was, she was with him uh, uh, up until his death. So. Uh, but uh, Roddy, uh, the most famous line, of course, in the movie, I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubble gum. That was an ad lib line from Roddy Piper. But he kicks in the door at the bank. But it's so dope, though. It's, yeah. <laughs> I come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. It's right after he just shot the two cops out in the middle of the street and took their guns. <laughs> Yep, and then he goes into a bank and starts like laying into motherfuckers with a shotgun and says this line first. 
And apparently, uh, Roddy apparently kept a little notebook of different sayings he would say for like uh, different wrestlers and different like promos and stuff. And John Carpenter read it. And he's looking at. He's just fascinated by it. But then he saw the line. I'll come in the two bubble gum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubble. Dude, we're using that. We are so using that. So yeah, Roddy Piper came up with that famous line. And that's that, that's the one line that really most people remember from They Live. And the fact that, you know, saying like uh, it's actually been used uh, in a, and erroneously credited by the way by the Duke Nukem series. Like uh because they the Duke, the Duke Nukem video games or whatever. It was like, uh no, uh that came from Roddy Piper. That did not come from Duke Nukem. So, just so we're clear on that, folks. Yep. Yep. Look at look uh, at up online on that and you can find that clip all over YouTube and Facebook. Oh my God! Yeah, it's a. I think it's a meme now. It's one of those memes oh, sure. now, uh, or a GIF or whatever. Yeah. Whatever is so, it? Both. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is too. And to be clear, um, that, props and everybody shooting in the bank—they're all like you know the, the 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 dead creatures, the skeletors. The alien creatures. What do they call them? I forgot the name of the actual aliens themselves, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, they, they all basically look like the living dead, essentially. Yeah, it look like corpses. Yeah. 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 Uh, now, the, the, since we're talking about the famous scenes of the movie, the most famous scene and the one I love the most, the fight scene. Fight scene in the alley between Roddy Piper and Keith David. Mm. Now, uh, John Carpenter even said himself when he was uh, when they were coming up with it, "We're about to start one of the great fight scenes in movie history." He actually said that out loud before <laughs> they filmed it. And, uh, <laughs> and he said the one reason I loved it because of the fact it's not a flashy fight. It's just in terms of like guys doing kung fu all of a sudden and martial arts and shit like that. It's just two dudes in the alley going at it with what little fighting skills they got. <laughs> so, so there's like headbutts and punching and kicking. Biting motherfuckers and like, like kicking somebody in the groin, just like regular it's, moves. It's far more realistic. I mean, very limited suspension of disbelief. Now, this big realistic fight was actually choreographed, rehearsed, and designed in John in John Carpenter's backyard in West Hollywood. They spent they spent over two months choreographing this thing in John Carpenter's backyard, and like to the point where they got it right. And uh, <laughs> uh, they actually, uh, at one point, um, what was it? Oh, yeah. Uh, at one point, uh, they actually do fight for real. They, Keith David and uh, Roddy Piper actually fight for real. They're like, uh, not faking. They, they, uh, they uh, only fake, yeah, they only fake the hits to the groin and the, uh, and the face. Every other hit in terms of the body and all that other shit, that was real. It was crazy. Yeah, but they, they're pulling the punch a little bit. They're not going full force. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and John Carpenter was so impressed by the scene and how they did it, he kept most of it intact in terms of like the legit hits and everything. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, at one point, there's, you see uh, Roddy Piper do a suplex on uh, Keith David. And, uh, <laughs> and when, uh, when uh, Roddy Piper proposed it to John Carpenter, he was like, uh, can you do a suplex? And Roddy Piper was like, which one? Because there's different types of suplexes. Bell of the back suplex, German suplex. And like, uh, and Roddy Piper was like, "You want me to show you?" He's like, "No, no, no, I'm cool." But <laughs> John Car, but funny enough, John Carpenter actually did submit to the sleeper hold. He let Roddy Piper put the sleeper hold on him to prove his validity. And yeah, it's, it was valid. <laughs> Don't do that. That's a bad idea. Yeah, hey, John Carpenter did it, man. <laughs> You're going to sleep. Just don't do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I'm just trying to get through the stuff that's really good. Now, in terms of like the, because we talked about how the aliens look, how they look like rotting corpses and shit. Now, John Carpenter specifically didn't want the aliens to look like high-tech aliens from other sci-fi movies. Uh, he decided since these beings were like corrupting humanity, they should look like corrupt humans themselves. So I, I, I can see that. I can see that. And look, it's, it's, it's not fantastic. I mean, it's not Rick Baker's work, but it's okay. It's go, it, it, it served the purpose. It served it the purpose. Yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> apparently this movie and Alienation were the only two major Hollywood films at the time released in 88. And both, me, both movies deal with aliens assimilating to life on Earth. Whereas one is more blatant, Alienation, where it's like, you know, aliens are almost like immigrants, like um, coming in from another land. This is more like they come, they already here. They, we've, they've been here, actually. We just don't know it. So, yeah, hiding amongst us, plain sight. Yeah. And then, actually, they do a great commentary track on this movie, Roddy Piper and John Carpenter. And uh, he said, John Carpenter actually pointed out that Roddy Piper has actually made more movies than John Carpenter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, and then, like, uh, John Carpenter's like, uh, John Carpenter's like, man, I've only made 20. And Roddy Piper's like, yeah, but you made 20 good ones. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. And uh, one thing that really bonded uh, John Carpenter and Roddy Piper is because the fact they both have anti-authoritarian streaks in both of them. Uh, uh, John Carpenter said, I've always had this adolescent hatred of authority. So it didn't take long for that kind of feel. So uh, uh, it doesn't take long for that kind of feeling, get that kind of feeling of what's going on. Like everybody's got their own little life and everybody thinks that's it. Nobody's helping nobody. So that's how he feels about society in a lot of ways. And actually, apparently, at one screening of the movie at uh, L.A. City Walk, uh, he noticed that a one that one little kid just walked out of the movie, and he's like confused by that. Apparently, the kid had been brought up on like Rambo movies, so he was like uh, not really used to this whole like uh, underlying undercurrent of uh, control and all this other shit. So he was just expecting some action movie shit. Yeah, but I mean, like to be fair, there is always an underlying current of of control and some weird stuff happening in all the Rambo flicks. But I, I get it. I mean, it's not as it's not as big bang like let's just go out and blow shit up as you get in the Rambo flicks or a lot of those other big action films from the eighties. I mean, to be fair, I guess a lot of those they're a little lighter on on the subtext. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, apparently uh, the Macho Man Randy Savage is also a big fan of this movie. Actually, a lot of the wrestling people are huge fans of this movie, and they've mentioned it in different interviews and stuff. Like Jim Ross and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes are huge fans of this movie. And, and Macho Man Randy Savage says his favorite line of the movie is, Life's a bitch and she's in heat. <laughs> yeah, there are some great one-liners in this one. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. <laughs> and also uh also uh john carpenter actually had roddy piper and keith david remain in character uh right whenever they could on set and then like uh and then uh the thing about it was like freaking they were sitting there the goal was pretty much for them to have a so, some somewhat of a camaraderie between each other and uh <laughs> roddy piper said you can't uh, they came back and said he said like what happened what happened to you guys he said well you know we didn't really have much to say, you know what I'm saying? Then we were together, and that was that. Like, <laughs> so they, they were just like instantly comfortable with each other. 
So they really, they really, it wasn't really necessary for him to go through all that, which is cool. Uh, also, Roddy Piper also credits this for jumpstarting the whole wrestler turn actor migration. This is a, a exact quote from Roddy Piper. I was the first ever wrestler in the history of wrestling to star in a major motion picture that was number one at the box office. And it gave the itch to, I don't know how many other wrestlers to this day. Uh, uh, but none of, not one of them to this day have, has put out too many quality pictures or not ones that have been a number one hit like this. That can be no, arguable. No, Dwayne Johnson. I was going to get to that. Like the, but I was going to say the other wrestlers that it led to Getting like into the acting game. Well, Hulk, Hulk Hogan is one of them. Uh, Jesse Ventura. Yeah. Dave Batista. Uh, yeah, Stone Cold. And we, the, the jury's still out on, on Batista because he's just starting. Yeah. Uh, but he's been in some number one movies. So I know but that's what I mean. Like, in terms of, like, compared to, to Roddy Piper, right? Like, you can, you can say right now because Dwayne Johnson is like the highest paid actor in Hollywood. He's made a ton of number one films, that kind of thing. All I'm saying is that Baptista, he's three, four, five films deep. We don't know yet. I mean, this, this guy could surpass Dwayne by the time everything's done. It's possible, yeah. So Baptista, Stone Cold Steve Austin, John Cena, and of course, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, the movie opened November 88, uh, Number four, November fourth, nineteen eighty-eight, debuted number one at the box office. Uh, total gross was thirteen million dollars. Uh, John Carpenter to this day is fascinated because it's his only movie that is open to number one. Wait, did you say total gross was only thirteen million? A uh, domestic gross, excuse me. Is that total for the domestic opening gross. weekend or for the total run? Uh, it says total domestic gross thirteen million. Hmm. That seems pretty small for for a number one film. Well, apparently it it opened number one and disappeared right after that. Okay, so they had one good weekend. Yeah, so. But yeah, like I said, John Carpenter is still to this day fascinated that this movie opened number one. Yeah, when you look at the total totality of his film catalog, it is kind of funny that that's his only number one. Yeah, now in terms of the influence, yeah, in terms of the influence, yeah. In terms of the influence of the movie, uh, and this is one of my favorite parodies ever, the fight scene between Roddy Piper and Keith David was replicated on South Park, Cripple Fight, shot for shot. <laughs> actually, there's a, if you go on YouTube, there's actually a comparison of the two scenes, and it's shot for shot. <laughs> oh, God, I love South Park. Those guys are so funny. And then I love the car. I love that Carmen was going to different businesses talking about Cripple Fight, Cripple Fight. And then well, the supermarket one was the funniest one. He was like, uh, excuse me, shoppers, excuse me, shoppers. Uh, we have Cripple Fight outside. Cripple Fight. Cripple Fight is outside. <laughs> and people, everybody just loved to go see Cripple Fight. And then, of course, the ending. But they, they're done. They're on the ground. They're both, both of the Cripple kids are spent. And then the one guy is like, all right, now cut it out. <laughs> They just went through this five-minute fight. <laughs> it's a killer, killer episode for sure. Yes, it is, man. Uh, also, uh, another thing that it actually led to, the Shepherd Ferry Obey campaign that we've seen in the streets for years and years now with the Andre the Giant face yeah. and you know, Obey underneath that. The Obey he got from They Live. So, so if you see that sign or that, that, that uh, art, work in the streets or whatever you see it everywhere especially the andre the giant face and you can can now buy it as a t-shirt or a 
<laughs> or a hoodie. So in that way, you can participate and obey. So oh, yeah. it's an anti-consumer sentiment, but the dude's yeah. made a bunch of money off. In fact, I think he was doing pretty well until he got hammered for the uh, uh, the Obama Hope setup that he did in 08. Because that was oh, his yeah, that was him too. copyright infringement based on a photo from somebody else. Um, yeah. so I, from what I remember hearing, it sounded like he actually got uh, got hammered on that one in the copyright lawsuit. But um, yeah. Yeah, buy, buy the shirt, I guess, and you know, help him pay his bill. <laughs> <laughs> actually, uh, Green Day uh, did uh, <laughs> did a homage to They Live in a music video for Back in the USA off the album Greatest Hits. Yeah, uh, yeah, same, yeah so. Uh, same thing, the, the punk band Anti-Flag also did an uh, inspiration of their music video. So the, the music video for the disease, like freaking like, yeah, a lot, a lot of anti-authoritarian bands love They Live, man. It's an American pastime, yeah. anti-authoritarianism. And the last of the films we're going to be talking about here, Big Trouble and Little China. Yep. Mm-hmm. The Kurt Russell uh, classic. Yeah, you know, funny enough is, I don't like, and I know I know this is actually the intention. I always felt that you know Kurt Russell got way too much like credit for this movie because I believe the Asian dude is the real hero of the movie as opposed to Kurt Russell as Jack Burton. But Kurt Russell got paid a lot more. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the first version of the screenplay was actually written by uh, Gary Goldman and David Weinstein. Uh, they were inspired by new wave martial arts movies that were sort of weird and they had special effects and they were shot against the background of oriental mysticism and modern sensibilities. Uh, they actually had written a uh, Western, they actually read it out as, initially as a Western set in the 1800s with Jack Burton as a cowboy that rides in the town. Uh, but they decided to change it to modern times. Mainly Car- uh, Carpenter was one that brought it to modern times. Uh, John Carpenter apparently was first offered the project in 1985. He originally he read the original script and thought it was utterly unreadable, though he found it had many interesting <laughs> elements. Uh, John Carpenter re-envi- like he re-envisioned the movie as sort of an inverse of traditional scenarios and action movies, where the Caucasian uh, protagonist is actually helped by a minority uh, sidekick. He turned the shit around. So Jack Burton in this movie, is, despite all his bravado, seemed like is like bumbling and you know. a green uh, this all talk, don't really know what the fuck he's doing. It's like scenes where he gets knocked unconscious, you know. Well, right, that's what I'm saying. It's basically, it's basically the Green Hornet, right? Where you got Bruce Lee as the chauffeur coming out and saving his ass all the time. Great job, Kato. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing all the work. I'm going to go back and take the credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it used to be Kato coming in, whooping everybody's ass, and then the, the white boy, the Green Hornet, get one punch in. Good job, Kato. Come here. You know, he'll, or he'll rope up the back. Come here, what's your thing? You know, that kind of shit. But Cato usually did all the work. Yeah. Uh, now, um, the thing about it was, problems kind of rose initially because of the fact the Golden Child came out around the exact same time. You know what I'm saying? So, Eddie Murphy, Golden Child, and they also have very similar themes in terms of the Oriental mysticism and shit. Uh, so, in order to uh, beat it to theaters, uh, Big Trouble went into the production in October 85, so it could open in July of 86, which is actually five months before the Golden Child came out. So, yeah. yeah, but of the two, I believe the Golden Child made more money. I mean, 
Look, I like Kurt Russell, but how are you going to compete with Eddie Murphy? Especially Eddie, 1980. Yeah, Eddie Murphy at his height, Eddie Murphy. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I get you on that. And also, uh, apparently John Carpenter was not entirely satisfied with uh, Boss Films, who did the special effects for this movie. You know, of course, Boss Films was known for Ghostbusters. They were actually established for Ghostbusters. And also, they were going to do Die Hard. Uh, but yeah, apparently he didn't like he he uh, apparently thought um, they had took on too many productions at the hand, and then some of the effects in the movie had to be cut down as a result. And uh, apparently, uh, Richard Edlin said that they had no problem with the workload or whatever. But uh, and that actually, Richard Edlin apparently is a huge fan of uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Apparently, is his favorite movie at the time to work on. Hmm. So, with the exception of Ghostbusters. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Apparently, uh, the effects budget of this movie was just under two million dollars, which uh, Richard Edlund said was barely adequate. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much going on there, and again, that would be part of what hammered them. Rather than I think they took on too much, I don't think they mm-hmm. had the budget to handle what people wanted uh, when it comes to the uh, the special effects side of things. Yeah, and Kurt Russell said he based uh, Jack Burton's speech a lot on John Wayne, which is why you see you like I can actually see it. Like, cause like, you know, Jack Burton's make a lot of big braggadocious speeches. Like he's John Wayne. He does a lot of that shit. You, if you realize that movie, you're like, okay, I get it. Yeah. Even his cadence kind of slows down like John Wayne. Like John Wayne, yep. So I'll give you that. And then of course, Kurt Russell lifted a lot of weights and went running two months prior to the production of this movie to get ready for the physical, uh, physical demands of principal photography. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, j- since, uh, Oh yeah, since Kurt Russell was uh, John Carpenter's only choice for the lead, they also suggested Jack Nicholson and Clint Eastwood, but when they both were unavailable, John Carpenter got his way and got Kurt Russell. So. Worked out. would have been really weird with that Jack Nicholson in that role. That would have been very weird. And Kurt Russell himself said about playing the role that Jack itself is a hero who has so many faults. Jack is and isn't the hero. Uh, he falls on his ass as much as he comes through on things. The guy's really kind of a blowhard. He has a lot of hot air, very self-assured, screw-up. Uh, he At heart, he thinks he's Indiana Jones, but circumstances are always way too much for him. Yeah. You can see that in the movie. Like, just like, just, like just, I'm a badass. I'm going to do all that shit. And then the actual shit happens. Like, oh, fuck. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> I, do like, I do appreciate about Dead Burton. So. Well, and it, I mean, look, honestly, it makes him a readily identifiable character for for the average person, anyway, right? Because everybody wants to, uh, you know, it's kind of kind of like I know you don't watch. Uh, it's always sunny in Philly very much, but like the Mac character, always talking about, oh, I could do this, and a roundhouse kick. If this guy came after me, I'd do blah blah blah. And then in reality, you just end up getting the shit beat out of you because yeah. you can't take on ten people at once. Like that part of it brings it back into a sense of reality that you kind of. Can almost forgive all the mystical stuff. It's like it's like we were talking about before. When it comes to sci-fi or something, the more outlandish you want your world and the activities to be around it, the more realistic your characters have to be. The more like centrally in touch with like a, a legitimate human condition or human emotion in order for the audience to connect. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just like, all right, well that was cool. I'm at Disneyland today. Thank you, Frozen. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Okay, yeah, okay. All right, um, Kurt Russell actually confessed that he was actually afraid of making this movie because of the fact that John Carpenter had did a couple of movies that were like a string of flops. 
Mm. Of course, they were going to be great cult classics, but at the time they flopped at the box office. But then when uh, he he said, uh, when uh, we realized it was John Carpenter making, it's like, you know what? It don't matter. That's my friend. I'm going to make a movie. So, well, I mean, he gave, gave him his break. And it's like I said, yeah, little, yeah, like I said, little trouble, yeah, big trouble in Little China is still a, is a cult classic, yeah. So it works out. I just, I just mean, uh, also, like it, it changed his whole life working with him on Escape from New York. So you, you gotta, you gotta maintain those relationships. I mean, the people that last in Hollywood, mm-hmm. as far as actors, yep. directors, they're people who they remember who brought them. Essentially, you know what? You dance with who brought you to the dance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So apparently, according to the uh, John Carpenter, the the opening scene where uh, Egg Shin, Victor Wong, when they're in the lawyer's office with uh, Jack Burton, apparently that was made. That was a decision made by the studio in order to make Jack Jack Burton more heroic. Uh, they didn't like the idea of Jack being the sidekick as opposed to the Asian guy being the hero. Uh, what? In Hollywood? And also, that guy has to be the hero. Yeah. Yeah, the white guy has to be the hero. Yeah, apparently. Not in the eighties, that never happened. Right, <laughs> and and for for the Asian and for the Asian uh, cast member, him, his uh, friend, whatever, Wang Chi, uh, the first court, the first choice is actually Jackie Chan. Would have been interesting. Would have been interesting because, of course, Jackie would probably have been done on all his own stunts and shit. Yeah. You know, so, so the action would have been a whole another level. I was just saying, I mean, talk about a whole nother level. You, you've obviously seen Rumble in the Bronx. Yeah. And he's doing no, that, like, half that shit with a broken foot. Yeah. Also, I was going to say this. Uh, the, main, the main thing that uh, Carpenter wanted Jackie Chan for is because of the fact he had just seen uh, Police Story in 85. Oh. Yeah. And remember, he did that with a broken pelvis. That, I mean, talk about a man who's done more with broken bones than most people do in their whole life. Jackie Chan, yeah. But the main concern from studios that his English wasn't good enough because they saw him in another movie he had made called The Protector with a uh, with, uh, with Danny Aiello, and uh, yeah, so you you seen you seen that movie right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But they they were just concerned because his English was so bad. It's like you know, yeah, the action is great, but his English is bad. So. His English is better than everyone else in in Hollywood's Chinese. So yeah. Sure. Meet in the middle. I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> so weird, man. I'm trying to see who else. Oh yeah. Uh, also, uh, for the female lead, uh, Gracie Law, they actually were pressuring John Carpenter to cast a rock star in their lead, so like Deborah Harry or somebody like that. And he went with Kim Cattrall. Now, uh, Kim Cattrall actually said she was like, you know what? I'm happy to do this movie because of fact uh, it actually she said it supplemented her uh, theater. Uh, career at the time, so uh, they, they, the studio didn't want Kim Cattrall because she had done like Porky's and Police Academy and movies like that, and they was like, we don't want that for this for whatever. Like, but she was drawn to the movie because of fact she's like she said, I'm not screaming for help the whole time. Uh, I think the humor comes out of situations between her relationship with Jack Burton, and she's also the brains. She's the brains, and he's the brawn. That kind of thing. You see that a lot in the movie, so I give it. I mean, it, it is especially for movies back then. It's you know, the, the biggest problem you have with a lot of those films as far as for women, it's always mm-hmm. a holding the bag while the guy goes on the adventure, right? Like, she's just yeah. also there. Yeah. You don't get that. And also, 
Yeah. Also for the film's fight scenes, John Carpenter said he used every martial arts trick in the book. He used uh, cheap gags, trampolines, wires, reverse movements, upside down sets. Uh, it was like photographing a dance. That's what he said. It's like a lot of, excuse me for the damn plane that's going over right now. You know what? You can't hear the plane, but you can hear the birds pretty good. Birds? Oh, yeah, and the birds, yeah. <laughs> apparently, some birds, uh, apparently, it's like a nest of birds fucking right next to uh, where I'm doing this right now. They're, they're just chiming they're in. Going it's, at it. it's they're going trying to just, They're just trying to, you know, do what they naturally do, but it's kind of disturbing. Yeah. As long as they don't swoop in on you, it doesn't turn into a Hitchcock film. True. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> now, the ending song of the movie was actually sung by the Coupe de Ville's, which, of course, again, is John Carpenter's band. So, uh huh. And uh, apparently, um, like I said, Kim Cattrall said she she would leave set every day at 4 p.m. and then that night would do a, a production of uh, Anton Chekhov's Three Sisters. <laughs> so she said she she like she loved this movie because of the fact if she like uh, if she'd only be a theater, she would have to be a waitress, and she didn't want to be a waitress. That works. It works just fine. Yep. Um. So. Uh, body count was 46 people the movie was released on July 2nd 1986 Uh, 8 days later actually uh, uh, Kurt Russell's son Wyatt Russell was born who is the current uh, who's going to be in Captain America and oh no sorry uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney Plus as US agent so there you go Uh, apparently it's a Overall, it grossed uh, $2.7 million on its opening weekend, went on to gross $11 million in North America, which is well below the estimated 19 to $25 million that was projected by the studio. Uh, it actually, apparently, it was released at the same time as uh, John, um, Jim, uh, Jim Cameron's Aliens. So that's what messed up this movie, Jim Cameron's that, Aliens. That, that was a monster. It just destroyed everything at the box office. So yeah, apparently, yeah, apparently one of the things that it gulped was big, oh, big trouble in Little China. Yeah. Now the movie itself, actually, uh, the legacy of the movie that the, the trail of like the, the demigod characters, where they had the, where they had lightning and rain and thunder, the three guys with the, the three Asian guys with the big wicker basket hats, shit. Uh, that interpretation was actually uh, inspired Raiden, Mortal Kombat. So you see Raiden on Mortal Kombat with the with the uh, Wicker hat, and he's doing shooting lightning and shit. Even when I watched the movie, I was like, "That's Raiden." <laughs> like, you know, kid, I was like, "That's Raiden from Mortal Kombat." I, I didn't know they did a Mortal Kombat movie already. So, well, ten years later, they uh, they just ripped it off, I guess. Yeah, I think he actually Raiden looks better in this movie than he actually did in the Mortal Kombat movie. Christopher oh, Lambert is cool, but well, yeah. First of all, Raiden in the Mortal Kombat movie is a white dude. Just exactly, so- that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So because apparently yeah. we could not find a single Asian actor anywhere in the world to play Raiden. For <laughs> Despite the fact that the lead and the, the lead and the main villain of the same movie are both Asian actors. But it was like, what was that? Uh, you're you're the MCU guy. What was the one where they had? I think it was was it uh, Kate uh, Blanchett playing uh, playing the? Oh, hello, uh, Thor Ragnarok. No, no, no. There was the other one. It was uh, it was a doctor something. 
They got the, they got some some uh, or maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't Kate, but they had some some white lady playing what was obviously always an Asian character in all the Oh, oh, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. Uh, it was Tilda it was Tilda Swing as the ancient one. Yeah. That's who it was. I couldn't I just remember Tilda. some white lady. I was like, oh, seriously, today still? Yeah. The character is usually an old Asian master, and then they made her a Celtic woman. And uh, the reasoning behind that apparently was because they wanted to get away from the old ancient, ancient Asian master stereotype. That was this. That was this. That was the said. That's what they said. That's what they said in their press release. So it reminds me of the press release when they redid uh, the live-action version of uh, what was it? Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And they said the reason why they cast regular actors to play the dwarves rather than actually getting little people to play the dwarves was, oh, well, we just wanted to make sure we had good actors. So instead of saving a shit ton of money on After Effects and CGI, uh, we hired regular sized people instead of going with little people and actually giving them a gig. There's, there's a, shit, I'm trying to remember his name. There's actually a stand-up comedian who's a, a little person who's got a hell of a funny bit about what they actually had at a march outside of Disney to protest them cast so like all these regular size actors in it. It's just one of those things that's like, it doesn't make any sense at all. None right. whatsoever. I, I agree. Uh, also, uh, the uh, character of Lo Pan was also created as an inspiration for the villain for Mortal Kombat, Shang Tsung. So Mortal Kombat was heavily influenced by Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. And also, uh, the second, uh, one of the, uh, yeah, one of the episodes of the second season of the 2012 reboot of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Basically, an entire episode called China uh, Chinatown Ghost Story is basically an entire reboot, an entire like homage to the Trouble in Little China. They basically redid it with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I thought that was cool. Uh, oh yeah, the video for, they actually did a parody video from Gun, for, uh, Gundam Style. You know, they did a parody of that. Uh, called Low Pan Style, and they also had a dude that paid Low Pan in the movie, James Hong. James Hong as a, in, in the actual video itself. Uh, Dwayne and Rod Johnson has been talking for years about doing a reboot of Big Trouble in Little China with himself. Uh, apparently it's a very early process, and uh, John Carpenter has been contacted about it, but it's still very early. I would definitely watch that. Yeah, and that's all I have for Big Trouble in Little China. You have anything else? Nothing to add, at least not related to uh, Carpenter, anyway. Cool. All right, so yeah, we just we just did a, another great deep dive into a, a great person that we really love. Like, there's a bunch of other movies that we didn't even that didn't even make the list that we both had on our list, like uh, Starman and uh, Vampires, Ghosts of Mars. I mean, look, if we, if we tried to, uh, oh, yeah. this would be like a six hour podcast and, you know, yeah. I mean, not that we don't have the time, but nobody's going to watch that. <laughs> exactly. And then the um, thing about it is we did not do uh, Escape from LA because of fact, uh, we're already doing Escape from New York and it's essentially the same fucking movie, just changed the locale. Plus we're all playing Escape from New York and Escape from LA right now in real life. We're basically exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but like I said, uh, to John Carpenter, we salute you, sir. We always appreciate your films. We love your work, sir. And uh, like I said, we're just two fans who, you know what I'm saying, want to talk about your work, man. So if you ever get a chance to see this, thank you, bro. Yeah, keep it coming. All right, yeah. All right, so we're going to go ahead and uh, converse with each other about the next episode of Dropping That Culture. But until that time, this has been uh, Dropping That Culture with JD and AJ. I'm JD.
And I'm AJ. And guys, be careful out there with all this COVID-19, and we hope you all have a very good day. Stay healthy. Dropping that culture. 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 Dropping that culture.